do something to Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. You know. Bruce Pritchard. What's going on, man? It's our last show of 2017. We've made another trip around the solar system, my friend. What's going on? Conrad, what a year 2017 has been. Should we just spend a few moments and reflect? What's causing all this? We are, in one year, two-time... Two-time? Podcast champions of the wizard. And when we were sitting here a year ago... We were nervous thinking about our first live show, and, and do you really think that, that people care? Do you yeah. really think they'll come out and see us? Yeah, it is sort of funny in hindsight. I guess we should give a peek behind the curtain. We exchanged Christmas presents this year, and they were all podcast-related. Uh, I sent <laughs> you a really cool sketch that an awesome listener of ours made, and, and we'll, we'll go ahead and post it and give him credit, uh, where he made a real Google machine drawing. And uh, I'm holding up the rumor and innuendo, and there's a box of gimmicks. It's good times. And then you sent me a lanyard from every one of our live shows with a really cool little piece at the top that said, Something to Wrestle Live Tour 2017. And uh, then you got the last scraggly piece of your Christmas, which was our first ever live event poster. And I know you've been redecorating your office. I hope all that stuff finds a good home. And it certainly does feel like this was uh, a year that exceeded all of our expectations, to say the least. Right, Bruce? Well, just again, be thinking about what the hell we were even thinking about a year ago at this time and wondering what our WrestleMania was going to be like. And do you think that this podcast might might actually do something and and do people really care and it has been a banner year with all of the live shows and the the sheer number of hours that we have produced for the podcast itself uh sometimes these things get longer and longer but yet the audience continues to grow i'm extreme you know if this were thanksgiving i'd be saying i'm extremely thankful for it but since it's the last show of 2017 it's a good time to reflect and thank our audience for being there and supporting us and you've supported us on instagram too we just did a fun little promotion where we gave away a series of gifts we called it the 10 days of bruce must which is just ridiculous as it sounds if you haven't already check us out on instagram we're going to continue the giveaways there it's instagram.com forward slash pritchard show or at Pritchard Show if you're on the gram. And, of course, you can check us out on Twitter as well, at Pritchard Show. And what would we be doing if we're not plugging Facebook? It's the Morning Deuce with Bruce every single day. He takes you down memory lane, shows you some old cool stuff from his office, uh, including booking sheets. The original doll from the Goldust skits is actually out there, too. It's Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle uh, we, we really want to interact with you guys. So we're doing Facebook lives and we're doing polls and we're trying to make this a show about what you want and what you wanted this week was vengeance 2001. And we're going to get to that after the break. But first we should talk about last week. We covered gold dust, one of the most iconic characters in the history of the company, 22 years and counting that character has been around. And I don't know that anybody could have done it as well as Dustin has. I got lots of feedback, mostly good, and uh, a lot of criticism for Dave Meltzer. Apparently, 
Not a lot of people agreed with his assessment of Goldust's work. I was a fan. I thought he did the character phenomenally, and maybe we were just looking at a different thing. But what was the feedback you got about our Goldust episode? Mostly positive in my probably overuse of the word androgynist and corrections on how some people thought I meant asexual, but they kind of misunderstood, uh, as is often the case by God. Sometimes I'm so misunderstood a lot of times. Well, but I, you bring a lot of that on yourself. Like you just put a T in the word androgynous, which is awesome. You said androgynist, which is awesome. That's, that's very androgynistic of you. Oh, now you're just trying to show off. Well, We're going to show off for you on the other side. It's Vengeance 2001. We'll be right back after these words. All right, Bruce, it's time for What Happened When? And we're covering Vengeance 2001, and we want to remind you, coming up next week, we've got the creation of Monday Night Raw. Set your calendars. Tell a friend. That's coming at you next Friday. So don't miss it. January 5th is when you can catch the creation of Raw. Uh, Bruce, let's get into Vengeance 2001, and this is something I've wanted to talk about for a long time simply because there's so much going on in the wrestling business. ECW's folded, WCW's went under, the invasion has happened, and now we're at the tail end of all that. And as we wind down 2001, it feels like the whole concept of we're going to run split crews, we're going to keep WCW, we're going to make a second brand. All of that's sort of been scrapped, and now we're going to combine the belts. And this feels like something Vince has done a lot over the years. He sort of plays hokey-pokey with this idea. We need two brands. We need two champions. No, never mind. Now just one champion. Left foot in, right foot out, turn around, shake it all about. What was the, the general consensus about the idea of scrapping the invasion and the second brand and combining the titles here? Well, you can't have a WCW championship if there is no WCW. Ugh, it's dead. The overall feeling was the WCW invasion whole angle was a failure and no one cared. It was, it was a dead brand at this point. So Vince didn't feel that having a WCW championship around was serving any purpose. And since there was no brand, there would be no champion. Combine them and have one. I feel like we should mention here, too, that um, the month prior to this at Survivor Series, we saw the alliance angle sort of come to an end when Team WWF defeated Team Alliance in the main event. The Rock was the sole survivor to win the match for Team WWF, and uh, he got his first ever pinfall on Steve Austin on TV or pay-per-view there after Kurt Angle, who was on Team Alliance, turned on him and hit Austin with the WWF title. So that sort of sets things in motion for this pay-per-view. That allowed The Rock, of course, to hit the rock bottom and then nail the pin. Um, as we sort of, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that pay-per-view in long form sometime, maybe this coming November. But let's talk about briefly that Survivor Series because it is sort of a, a really lopsided card as far as, you know, where you've got the Alliance and Team WWF. But what do you remember about it being The Rock who's going to come away as the sole survivor? Was there some jockeying for position between Steve and Rock at that point, or did it really matter? It didn't really matter. It was more of a Vince did not want Austin to be booed and felt that Steve in the position that he was in, which was kind of a position as a heel throughout a lot of that alliance stuff, I was reminded of a conversation where someone came up to Steve in a in a grocery store at a gas station 
and said, I, I saw you on TV and you ran from those other guys. Stone Cold Steve Austin wouldn't run. And in reflection, Vince looking at that character looked at him. You're right. Stone Cold would never run. Um, and it just, Vince was done. You know, he, he wanted, he wanted that old Stone Cold Steve Austin character back. We should also mention that the next week on Raw, it's going down in Charlotte. It's the night after Survivor Series, and we see the return of Ric Flair here. Ric Flair comes out when uh, Vince McMahon is attempting to strip Steve Austin of the world title and give it to Kurt Angle because of what Kurt did the previous night, when all of a sudden Flair's music players plays and out he comes, and he announces that um, he's bought out Shane and Stephanie Shear in the company. And now Vince and Rick are storyline partners in the World Wrestling Federation. This is one of the more iconic moments for Vince and, and the McMahon character because you get that tremendous facial with him pulling his ear a bunch and it, it gets played all the time. But talk to us a little bit about how the decision was made for Flair to come back into the fold and how he was recruited, but not as a wrestler. Okay, have I told the story about the ear pull before? No, and even if you have, do it again. Okay, the ear pull came from kind of a. You're gonna hear a lot in this in this show about arguments between Vince and I during this little period, but the ear pull came from a cue where Vince was in the ring, and we would cue whoever's music to interrupt Vince, and a lot of times. 99% of the time, that was me cueing the music. I would wait for the right moment, hit the music to interrupt him or whatever. And Vince came back, damn it, Bruce, you're hitting it too soon. Or you hit it too late. Or it was wrong. Um, no matter what it was, it was too soon, too late, um, whatever. So his cue for this one night was, when I pull my ear, that's the cue to hit the music. And instead of a little subtle reach up and give a tug of the ear, which I would have gotten, Vince starts playing with his ear and pulling on his ear because when he touched his ear, he thought, well, goddamn, why aren't you playing the music? And it takes a second, okay, that's cue, hit the music, to hit the music, to the person that actually hits the music, to hitting the music. See, that's why I would oftentimes anticipate the cue. And since Vince thought that as soon as he touched his ear, the music would instantaneously hit, and it didn't, he began massaging and tugging, and he was milking that motherfucker for all it was worth until finally the music blared, and then he was making funny faces. So that's that's that famous shot that you see everywhere is Vince telling me to hit the music. That is just awesome. And it's, oh. But, but we, and then, you know, it became a thing where we would make fun of it. But we just were like, good God. And it was so funny that Kevin and I, who are on headsets and we're the ones cueing the music, <laughs> we're laughing at it, how over the top he is. So of course that delays it even more. But yeah, that's, that's it. But Flair, you know, uh, Rick was a, Rick was somebody that we wanted from the beginning. Rick had his contract and everything uh, to be fulfilled by AOL Time Warner. 
Rick had been out of the business and we had approached him before. I should mention that he was, uh, at home collecting about $15,000 a week since Nitro went off the air. Um, and in order for him to come over, he's going to have to accept a buyout. And originally, according to the rumor and innuendo, uh, his contract guaranteed him $800,000 a year through February of 03. And there was talk in the dirt sheets at the time that the only way he would come in would be if he would make more money, which he was aiming for a million dollars a year if he was going to give up $800,000 in order to do so. Is that the way you remember? Well, that's what the rumor and innuendo was. And I didn't, obviously I didn't have any say whatsoever in uh, negotiations with Rick at the time, but Rick was also not necessarily wanting to come back. Right. We were looking, we were looking for someone, a, a huge name that we could bring into this that would make a difference. And at this point, in all of it, Bischoff had been brought up. A lot of different people had been brought up, and Rick was the sentimental favorite. I think everybody loved Rick and really wanted Rick to be a part of it. So whatever deal they came up with, they came up with, but it was a surprise. It was kind of a last-minute coup, and it was something that was put together and agreed upon at the very last minute. Okay, we've got Flair. Let's go. So it was great to see him, and, and I think he was a well. I think he was a welcome addition to the roster at that time. Do you believe that um, he agreed to come back for less money, or do you think he made a better deal for himself? I God, I, I would find it hard to believe at that point in time that they would have agreed to that much money, but. Who knows, man? They, they definitely could have because a big part of it was you're not going to be wrestling. We're going to need you one day a week and it's, it's limited dates. So that was another kind of attractive deal. But, um, unfortunately I'm not privy to all those negotiations. I was just privy to we've, we've got Flair on the hook. He's interested. So if we can make this deal work, then we're going to do it. But we're, we're he's never going to wrestle again. <laughs> You know, we got all the nevers. This is never going to happen. I do not want to see Ric Flair with his shirt off in a WWF ring with boots on ever again. Fast forward. <laughs> you know what? How long did it take us? A couple months? Right. You know, um, so it's always funny when you, you get all these mandates and are told never but from a guy who never says never. Yeah, he comes back in um, November. And he's wrestling at Royal Rumble in January. So right. Never 60 days or so. Sure. Um, there, was, there was a report in the dirt sheets that the, one of the primary reasons for him wanting to maybe take a buyout and come in is because he'd been working on his autobiography and he wanted to have the WWF machine behind it to sort of push sales. Of course, we remember that book doesn't even come out until 04, I believe. Do you remember that book being in the works a long time before it actually came out? I remember that was part of the discussions and some of the different things that we could do with Rick. Uh, also being a part of the, it wasn't the WWF network at the time. It was the Legends channel that we had on some cable companies and direct TV, things of that nature. And having Rick be a huge addition to that. But Rick, yeah, I mean, as far as Vince looking at Rick as a commodity, yeah, he saw a lot of things that Rick could help us with. And the book was one of them. 
one of the things I've always been curious about is this iconic Raw, which I guess we should maybe talk about in long form sometime, or maybe we could do it now. This is not only the Raw where Flair comes back, but Jerry Lawler comes back too. Of course, we remember that Lawler had done a walkout, and I'm sure we'll cover that in long form at some time. But he's coming back here, and uh, this is after he had quit in protest uh, in February when his then-wife, Stacy Carter, was fired. Do you remember how everything sort of came together for him to make a return to the broadcast booth for the WWF? Yeah, uh, King was out of work, you know, and he, and he had, I'll never forget, Jerry, when he quit telling JR and I, I've got a standing offer from WCW for $300,000 sitting on my desk at home. I could walk out of here and I could be on Nitro next week. And we said, we really don't want you to do that, King. We'd like for you to stay and be a part of the company. Um, JR made a comment of, I don't know how Abbott and Costello were when they broke up or, you know, Martin and Lewis because JR and King were a team. It was a, it was a tough thing to hear and a tough thing for Jerry to leave in the first place. But he did leave. He walked out of his own volition. So, you know, you fast forward to now and, and WCW did not have a standing offer for him. They weren't interested in him. And now he was relegated to independence in Memphis and trying to drum up whatever kind of business that he could on his own and was finding it pretty difficult. So Jerry had made overtures. He had called Jim Ross. He had called Vince. And the uh, the scuttlebutt was, which this is hilarious, was, well, King, you never should have made that comment about Bruce on a man cow. And Lawler had alluded to uh, Stephanie McMahon and I having an affair, which is not true and was something that that Lawler had said on there. That... That rubbed a lot of people. You like the way that I just just killed that right off the top? No, it's just funny that, you know, as much as Stephanie McMahon hates your fucking guts, uh, there's no chance she would let you touch you touch her with your penis, right? No, no, or anything else. But um, <laughs> so, but that was, but that's an easy scapegoat. You know, well, you know, you, as soon as you say the things about Bruce, because Bruce will take the heat. Stephanie's not going to take the heat in that situation. Right. You know, it's going to go to Bruce. So Lawler called me, and I, I remember getting the, the call at home. And Lawler called me and asked me, he says, hey, man, I'm really sorry about what I said, and I'd like to come back, but I understand that you're holding me back. And I said, Jerry, um, first of all, I'm over what you said. <laughs> it was... It was uncomfortable for a couple of days in my home life because of different things that had happened and, and were being said. But, man, we're in the wrestling business. I don't care. Wait, hang on. Your Stephanie didn't know that he was full of shit and y'all had to have a real conversation about that comment? No, because my wife's mother had heard it. Oh, and so. First, before I heard it or anybody else had. So your mother-in-law got in your wife's ear and then trickled down from there yeah and at the time it was when i had just gotten back into the creative end of things so i'm spending many more hours at the office a lot more than i had been spending with the creative team so the rumor and innuendo could run absolutely wild forget about the fact that there were you know eight other people there 
all the time. You know, it's just silly, stupid, um, you know, schoolyard rumor and innuendo bullshit, which is why I hate it. But I talked to Jerry and I had a good talk with him. I said, Jerry, first of all, no one asked me. Second of all, I have no say whatsoever as to who they want to hire to do commentary. Uh, I give my opinion. I give my suggestions. But other than that, I can't hire you or fire you. So um, I wish you luck. But as far as you and me, you know, we're, we're good. Next. Move on. Um, I, I think you'd be a good addition to come back. So he continued his talks with uh, Jim Ross and, and Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn, and they eventually agreed to bring him back. But I think Vince McMahon was more not wanting to bring him back right away because of how he left, having nothing to do with what he said on the radio, having nothing to do with any of that. That's all part of the business. But how he left, Vince wasn't happy about. So it's part of the business to go on a radio, a national radio show and slander your coworkers and the boss's daughter. That's just part of the business. No, what I'm saying is, is when you're a public figure, you unfortunately leave yourself open to that kind of crap. Sure. Well, I mean, your gimmick was brother love, right? You know. You know, um, Lawler said that uh, a lot of this started to come into motion for him when he went to visit the WWF when they were in Memphis for SmackDown. He says, finally, I went into Vince's office and I was basically made to feel really welcome. He gave me a big hug and said, King, this is your home. Whenever you get your personal problems straightened out, we would love to have you back. Does Vince always make it that easy after a guy's went out here and made some crazy statements? Is he always that sort of let bygones be bygones? Here's a big hug and let's think about the good times and get the band back together. For the most part, yes. Unless it's something really bad. Did you ever have a conversation with Stephanie about that comment? Not your Stephanie, but, uh, the Stephanie. Yeah, we had a good laugh about it. So is there, does he have to sort of go kiss the ring with her in order to come back? Do you think? No. And like I said, you know, but Stephanie McMahon and I, we laughed about it. <laughs> we thought it was funny and nothing more was brought up about it on our end, which is why it was always peculiar to me that other people, whether it be John Laurinaitis or JR or whoever else was dealing with Jerry per Jerry would say, well, they said, you know, because of what you said about Bruce. So, you know, eh. No biggie. Um, how was Lawler received by everybody when he comes back? Is there any sort of residual heat about the way he left, or, or is it just bygones be bygones with everybody when he's back? Bygones be bygones, and you move on, and you move forward. You can't look back. At that point, he and Steph, he and Stacy had split, right? Correct. Uh, did a lot of the guys sort of feel bad for him that he got he, maybe he got duped in the whole deal. Uh, duped, sorry. No, I don't think so. I think that most people kind of looked at it as, you know, you got, you got what you got and, and that's life. People get dumped. So maybe next time you'll go into your next relationships with your eyes open and you won't allow that to rule your business life. One of the things that uh, is the talk of the industry at the time is that ratings had started to slip. And at this point, Linda McMahon is on the investors conference calls and she addresses it. She says, quote, we feel our ratings slipped because our weekly storylines were not as compelling. 
Now, in actuality, um, the WWE had started, I guess they're F at this point, had started to ter- turn the, um, the volume up on some of the raunch, I guess, including SmackDown on Thanksgiving having a gravy match with Trish and Stacy. You've got Vince exposing his bare ass for the Kiss My Ass Club. So they're starting to maybe turn the volume up on that. Do you remember there being a conscious effort to maybe go more shock TV again to try to get ratings back that you maybe you had lost some ground with? You know, it's interesting because... Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Whenever ratings would start to slip or when they, when they would rise, the argument would always be, well, it's accumulation of things we built to that to get it to this point. Now we have to keep it there. But when they would drop, it would be, you have to do something immediately to shock them to get them back. When in reality, it's the same thing. It takes time to get them back. And a lot of times we would lean on probably way too heavily the shock value, the, the, the sexual innuendo and the raunch to shock our viewers and boy did you see what they did last night on monday night raw vince pulled his pants down and had a guy kiss his ass they had chicks half naked wrestling in gravy so and that's easy to do about halfway through oh two the fiscal year oh two it looked like you guys were sort of tempering expectations for what the profit would be originally the estimate was going to be a hundred million then maybe the idea is maybe closer to 50 million and there's real concern here that they're going to have to do something to turn the corner, either with pay-per-view, house shows, TV ratings, or a combination of all of that. Do you remember sort of feeling like, hey, now that there's no competition and we're in competition with ourselves, that's great, but it might actually be bad for business. Was that a thought that maybe you guys did your best work when you were maybe playing from behind or you had some competition? Always did our best work when we had somebody kicking our ass, breathing down our neck. Right. Um, you know, if I would even dare to say that, <laughs> that our better work was when we were getting our ass kicked. Right. Even more so than when we took over, even though a lot of that shit was excellent as well. But when you no longer have that pressure every week of having to, to defeat the other guy, internal pressure is one thing and Competition from within is great. It's not the same. It's not the same as somebody on the outside kicking in the balls every week. So I think we'd become a little bit complacent, and we thought that by creating this WCW angle from within, that could be an answer, and we would build upon it. And unfortunately... Probably one of my biggest criticisms of Vince McMahon is, is that he never allowed anything to truly fail. He would cut it off before, man, before it went totally in the gutter, he would just cut it off. I would have liked the opportunity to see if we could have pulled it out. 
but all too often it would be, nope, it's not working, it's failure, next. And he's probably right more times than he was wrong, but it still stung a little bit. The uh, December 15th issue of The Torch had a lot of details about a class action lawsuit filed against the WWF that was alleging wrongdoing in this IPO from a couple years prior. And the lawsuit, which was filed by the firm of Lavelle and Stewart, claimed that certain officers and directors of the WWF violated federal securities laws by not disclosing to investors that several of the underwriters were receiving commissions from certain investors. In other words, the stock price had been sort of artificially propped up and it was, it happened because major investors were given the discounted pre-market price of $17 in exchange for agreeing to pay more once it was available to the public. So this means the officers received part of the profits that the investors made and therefore the fix is in. Lots of people are upset and the lawsuits here. Do you remember there being conversation about this initial IPO and there being some controversy about the way that all went down? All I remember was the stock doubling the first day yeah, and a lot of people making a lot of money and some people not making as much. But as far as legalities of it all, I don't have the first clue. All that stock market stuff as far as the legalities of it, I, I just don't know. Well, here's the reason somebody would want this to happen, just to break it down. If you require guys to – you give them a, a taste at the early price – but you're requiring them to purchase it at a higher price later, then it artificially skyrockets the price upwards. So you mentioned a minute ago the price doubled. It did. It went from $17 uh, to, at some point during the day, on its very first day, $34. And a lot of that is because a lot of the folks got in at 17 because they agreed to buy it higher later. So you get a better deal overall with an average buy. So, no, you don't really wind up getting it for 17 You get it somewhere in the middle because you've got buys at 17 and 34. So your average is cheaper, but you still come out ahead if the price is still at 34. So it is a little bit of dirty pool, but I don't know what else we would expect. Yeah, but I, I don't know that that necessarily happened. I know that people were uh, given a friends and family option to get in at $17, and they were able to buy stock before it went on sale to the general public at $17. And a lot of them sold it on that first day at 34 um, the rest of it, unfortunately, I don't know about. Uh, one of the other things that's sort of the talk of the business at the time is DirecTV was locked out of offering WWF pay-per-views. And um, the pay-per-view channel on this Sunday had a message on screen that says, the WWF refuses to authorize DirecTV to offer to its residential customers WWF vengeance. We apologize for any inconvenience. We are striving to reach a solution with the WWF and are committed to bringing you the very best in pay-per-view programming. I know we've talked about this briefly before, but you guys sort of had an on-again, off-again relationship with the satellite companies. What was the issue here with DirecTV? Uh, the issue was we had renegotiated a lot of our pay-per-view prices across the board, and DirecTV wasn't willing to negotiate. When they reached an impasse, it was you're no longer going to receive any WWF pay-per-view programming until we can reach an agreement here. So rather than continue on the old agreement, which is what DirecTV wanted to do, they decided, well, 
we'll just take that revenue away from you and we won't offer it on direct TV until we reach an agreement. How much revenue do you think was lost when you guys pull a move like that? Wow. I forget what the percentage of direct TV was in 2001, but I'm willing to bet it was probably in, in the 30% range of, of pay-per-view buys. I guess the, um, I mean, how much money do you think that is? Like if you had to put a dollar figure on it, I would bet it'd be in the millions. So my question, I guess, is doesn't Vince have some sort of weird obligation to the, not weird, but I mean, you're out here for money and I know that this is a negotiation tactic, but you're leaving a lot of money on the table here by not getting a deal put together. Is there any sort of pushback from investors? Is he taking any heat from the board or anything like that for this? No. And it's, you take your pay-per-view probably, I would say June and December would be our least purchased pay-per-views in that, in that time frame beforehand. You take one where you can take a hit on. And if it's better for business in the long run, then it was something that they felt they needed to do. Let's talk about, um, the kiss my ass club. I know that we have uh, briefly talked about this before, but this is a big part of television at this point, And we get lots of questions about it on the November 26th draws. We're building towards vengeance. Vince asked Austin to kiss his ass. And of course they play back and forth. He gives him chapstick and mouthwash. Austin eventually gets on his knees, asks if he used toilet paper, then low blows him. Of course, Vince has his pants down. So he gets his bare ass whipped with a belt Austin's doing what, what, what a lot here. A lot of people remember this. Another time we've got a show in Oklahoma city. So you know what that means? Uh, JR is caught laughing at the whole angle from before. And now he's thrown into the ring and angle is forcing him down to kiss Vince's ass. When it feels like the undertaker is going to make the save. And Taker gets on the mic and lists off everyone who's come and gone and kissed his ass. Hogan, Savage, Warrior, Brett, Sean. But the person who kissed his ass the most was me, the Undertaker. And he asked JR if he's going to kiss Vince's ass. And, of course, JR says, hell no. So then Taker turns to JR and says, so you think you're better than me? And then he beats the shit out of JR and shoves his head in Vince's ass. And then Taker takes JR's hat and puts it on Vince and Vince gallops around the ring, spanking himself and wearing JR's hat. It's a silly spectacle. It's the kiss my ass club. Whose idea was this? Who was reluctant for it? Uh, what did JR say about having his head shoved up Vince's ass here? hundred percent Vince McMahon's idea. Surprise. I know. And, and not just, you know, kiss his butt. He had to, he had to show his ass, bare ass on TV. They want to see my ass. Look at it, dimples and all. Good God, it's gorgeous. Um, you're right, boss. I love it. So anyway, Vince wanted, you know, that was his visual, man. He wanted to see people literally, everybody talks about kissing ass. Right. It's a little different when you actually see someone visually, physically have to do it. Uh, Undertaker at the time, you know, yeah, I was trying some different stuff with the American badass and, uh, let's see about a heel run here. People weren't, you know, they, 
they don't want to boo the Undertaker. He's cool. And he rides a bike into the ring. He had the long hair at the time. We finally cut his hair to try and make him less cool. But you're in Oklahoma. You're in somebody's hometown. What better place to get heat than to take the hometown hero, make him have to kiss your ass? And JR got a lot of sympathy for that. So as much as people want to, you know, say, oh, we picked on JR. Yes, JR was picked on from the standpoint of he was an over baby face that you could get heat and you could get sympathy for, for doing that stuff too. So it was because of his star power. If he didn't mean anything, it wouldn't mean anything to do that stuff to him and get heat. So JR was cool with kissing ass. Hell no. No, JR didn't like the Kiss My Ass Club at all. I don't know anybody that did except for William Regal. William Regal liked it. William Regal, actually, it was his idea to do it. He thought it was major heat, and he loved it. I don't know that he actually loved the actual kissing of the ass, but he liked the idea of it, and he had no problem doing it. Um, Hypothetically, what would it sound like if Vince were trying to sell JR on kissing his ass? Well, there was no selling. Was, All right, JR. Now, goddamn, tonight we're doing the Kiss My Ass Club. Uh, here's how it's going to go. We're going to have you kiss my ass. Well, goddamn, boss. Uh, you know, I've got my family here. I, hang on. Then Undertaker comes out for the save. And after Undertaker cuts a promo, he's going to look at you and say, JR. I'm the biggest ass kisser here. Are you going to lower yourself? And you say, hell no. And then Undertaker shoves your face up my ass so far. We lose that black hat of yours. <laughs> Goddamn, boss. Um, pretty much, it, it, was, it wasn't an asking. It was, this is what we're going to do, Jim. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this kiss my ass stuff is such a Vince thing. Ooh. I'm glad we finally get to talk I, about it. You know, and, and it's, it's funny. Uh, everybody, whenever they would see it or hear it, would say, I'm not doing that until they got time to do it. Um, Vince eventually announces that The Rock and Trish Stratus are going to take on him and Kurt Angle. And if Rock and Trish lose, they have to join the Kiss My Ass Club on SmackDown. And if he didn't, he would lose his spot at vengeance. So flair comes out and says, if Vince and angle lose, then Vince would have to kiss rocks ass on SmackDown. And if he didn't angle would lose his spot at vengeance. So of course, you know, what's coming during the match. Austin does a run in the rock bottom is landed. And that means Vince has to kiss his ass on SmackDown. So on the go home edition of SmackDown on our way to vengeance, rock comes to the ring Vince is already there. He tells Vince to get down on his knees. He reveals the people's ass. Uh, and then he says, Oh, we're not ready yet. So Jr. comes down and rock tells Jr. to put the cowboy hat on Vince to add to the humiliation. And he teases it again. And then he says, Nope, not yet. And Trish Stratus comes in. And at this point, it looks like Vince is going to luck out and he's going to get to kiss Trish's ass. <laughs> and here comes the swerve, bro. Now it's Rikishi's turn. Rikishi comes out to a big pop and Vince McMahon has to join the kiss my ass club by kissing Rikishi's ass. And of course the rock doesn't just want him to give it a peck. 
he pushes his head in there for the stink face and then officially proclaims that the Vince McMahon kiss my ass club is closed. Who wrote this? Whose idea was musical chairs with the ass meat? Uh, for the most part, the majority of that was Vince himself as well. He wanted, you know, again, for the heel heat, it all gets dumped back on him. Plus, it was a way to show everybody he's willing to do whatever he's going to ask you to do. So when guys would complain about the stink face from Rikishi or worry about asking to kiss his ass, Vince is going to show, I shoved my face right up Rikishi's ass and I took it. No problem. As a matter of fact, I wrote it, pal. So that was all, that was all Vince's idea. But I do have to say, man, was Trish all the way live here or what? Uh, Trish was roll tide. Holy cow. You know, going back and watching this stuff and Trish has always been a beautiful, absolutely just gorgeous young lady. I mean, good God, beautiful. But watching this, uh, during this time, she was striking. She still is, but back then I was like, oh my God. One of the things that, um, I've always been curious about is the decision to sort of almost do a double turn with the kiss my ass club because Taker was, was pretty well cemented as a baby face, but by turning on Jr., he becomes a heel. And Austin is a heel, but by refusing yeah. to kiss Vince's ass, he's a baby face. So is this the only kiss my ass double turn in the history of wrestling? Yeah, that's what they call it, you know, in the biz, Conrad, the old uh, KMI DT. Well, it's sort of fun because these guys have been, you know, opposing each other. And then all of a sudden. Actually, it'd be KMA. <laughs> DT, I said KMI, KMADT. I, I sort of assume when you're using that voice, you're intentionally misspelling words. But let's Thank talk you. about the go home edition of Raw before Vengeance, because we would see Austin wrestle Jericho here, and of course, there are two guys in the title tournament. We're going to get to in a moment. But on the show, Austin beats Jericho here clean with the stunner. Given what we know about the formula of WWE booking. That sort of lends us the idea that Jericho's going over, but a lot of people were hesitant by that. Is that always the rule of thumb? I mean, it feels very paint by numbers a lot of times that if someone doesn't look good on the go home edition, it's probably going the other way at the pay-per-view. Isn't that the way it's traditionally done? I, it's done that way a lot, but you know, unfortunately we, we play, we play into cookie cutter mode more often than we actually should going into this. I don't think that anybody really knew who was going to end up with the championship really until the weekend of. So the idea behind the entire card was you build to Austin rock for the championship. That was the entire build of the promotion. If you listen to the entire pay-per-view, it's all, Austin Rock, Austin Rock, Austin Rock. Jericho and Angle were almost non-entities in a lot of ways. Um, yes, they were in the match, and yes, they were a big part of it. But the promotion and the buildup was so far one way that that's all people were thinking, in my opinion. You said almost nobody knew 
or maybe you said nobody knew. Did you mean yourself in the office? When did you guys know? I know you probably didn't tell the boys till the weekend of. Jericho's gone on record, I think, as saying he didn't know until the day of the pay-per-view. When do you guys start discussing finishes with the boys, and when did you guys know we're going with Jericho? The Everybody had an opinion. Everybody had an opinion, and I dare say that everybody – had a different opinion. There were those folks that were in the angle camp. There were those folks in the Jericho camp and then obviously rock and Austin for various reasons. I was in the, uh, Kurt angle camp. I really wanted Kurt angle to be the first undisputed world heavyweight champion. I wanted him to be the man. Um, there were people that thought, Man, we got to go with Austin. It's a babyface turn. If he doesn't win it, they're going to lose confidence in him. Then there were people that were saying the same thing about Rock. You know, it's got to be the Rock, man. He's 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 the man. Got to go there. And then there were people that were saying, you know, Jericho's up and coming. He would be a great heel champion and somebody that could be a chicken shit heel that babyfaces could go after because everybody knows from the babyface side that they can kick his ass. So it was, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of different opinions going back and forth. Um, and I, I want to say that, you know, the day of is when the decision was finally made and it was made out of the, the harder pitches, I think for everybody else other than Jericho that Vince finally said, that's the reason to go with Jericho. Nobody's calling it and he deserves it. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about Jericho. That's really sort of the theme of the show here. Uh, I feel like we should mention that uh, this pay-per-view goes down on December 9th, 2001 in San Diego, California. Um, you guys didn't run San Diego a ton for pay-per-views. What was the, th- what was the general feeling from the office about San Diego as a market? San Diego is a great market. You know, really, if you're going to, Look at Southern California, San Diego and Los Angeles. Traditionally, both did really, really well. And if you had a, um, for example, a pay-per-view in LA, man, you always ran San Diego shortly, shortly thereafter. A lot of times, man, we could run LA San Bernardino, which is really a suburb of LA and San Diego and it would all do well. But San Diego was a great market. So it was a good TV market for us, and in this instance, it was a great pay-per-view market for us. Uh, you guys draw 10,699 fans here for a gate of $550,580. Would you consider that a good house? It feels like that number for a big-time pay-per-view like this probably should have been bigger. I mean, just this past week, I think the WWE ran a million-dollar house show. Well, this is also 16 years ago, so yeah, I'd consider that a great house. Um, you guys were certainly sort of shaping the audience to believe that the finals of this tournament is going to be Rock and Austin, because when SmackDown is going off the air, uh, you've got Rock and Austin sharing a beer, staring each other down, and then sharing a beer, and then banging beers together. SmackDown goes off the air. Was there ever any consideration to doing a rock in Austin here, or did this feel like a throwaway pay-per-view to do that at? Um, yeah, uh, yes, there was a lot of consideration. There was a lot of consideration for every combination that you can come out of with those four guys. The underlying current 
so let me back up, not back up here, but get, get to the day of the pay-per-view. There was another underlying current that was happening at this same time frame in the WWF, and that was the NWO. Vince had been talking to, to Hogan. He was talking to Nash and Hall, and it was this pay-per-view in San Diego where Vince first posed the question to the agents about, hey, Hogan, Nash, and Hall are interested in coming back. What's the opinion? And almost unanimously, everyone was uh, in favor of Hogan coming back, but not necessarily in favor of Hall and Nash coming back. So in Vince's mind, Vince is playing with the what-ifs. Okay, if they do come back, who do we have? And this pay-per-view and this championship, when it all kind of comes to fruition after all is said and done, was almost a secondary issue to Vince because Vince is looking at opponents for Rock and Austin for WrestleMania without the championship at stake. So he's seeing them in, in a role with the NWO and then his – Next thought processes and then the championship. What am I going to do with that over here? So there were a lot of factors that went into everything at this time. And, and that, that inquiry to come back had just taken place in, in that week or so before this pay-per-view. So it's like a whole brand new what ifs coming into play. And I know we've covered the NWO and the WWE in our archives, but briefly tell everybody what the feeling from all the agents was hands down like i said they, they were in favor of hogan but they weren't in favor of hall and nash coming back so the pay-per-view starts with vince opening with a long promo where he's talking about being forced to kiss rikishi's ass and he says he who laughs last laughs loudest which is repeated a lot throughout the show and then flair's music hits and um gets underway for Vince McMahon to sort of shut up. And now we've got a pay-per-view opening with a Flair and Vince McMahon promo. Does it feel kind of weird to start a pay-per-view with a promo like this? No, because a pay-per-view is different than than television. I say it's different than television. Even though you look at TV, that's how they start most of their television shows. You have people, you have a captive audience so the idea is let's entertain them, let's set the stage with a promo and and get Vince and Rick out there right off the bat. Um, just a different way to start it, you know. Even more so, I love the going back to the the open and the fact that they used all the different champions in that cold open and the the package open with Freddie Blassie and and you saw Ivan Koloff and Bruno San Martino you saw all of the old champions and I thought that was cool as shit and then here coming out is Ric Flair with Vince and I thought it was a nice nice way to set the stage um let's talk a little bit about the situation with uh the writing team at the time, because we know that Russo's not here. Brian's in by this point. You're there. Who else is on uh, contributing to the writing for the show? Michael, Ed Kosky. Um, I even think Heyman was, was here at this time as well. 
who would have been uh, formatting a show like this? Because it's well done when you see sort of the seeds starting to be sown here in this opening segment with Vince about the laughing last. And we go to it throughout the show, and then there's the big payoff at the end. Who would have been like the primary person putting all this together? Probably Brian Gortz. Okay. Up first, we've got Albert and Scotty Too Hotty. They're going to be taking on Test and Christian. Um, during this time, Albert was the hip hop hippo. How does the hip hop hippo come to be? Wow. So many ways is I was watching this and I was taking notes on the show itself. I was watching Albert. Albert came to us uh, from Peabody, Mass, and he was in one of the original Funkin' Dojos way back when. And he came in and was Prince Albert, did some different things. George the Animal Steel was one of our agents, Jim Myers. And George had an idea looking at Albert to do a George the Animal Steel Jr. gimmick with Albert. He would dress exactly like George the Animal Steel in the same black trunks with the the red stripe, let his hair grow out all over his back, green tongue, and have George come out and manage him and make appearances with him. The thing I remember most about this whole gimmick, which, by the way, I loved at the time, was Jim Myers coming in to pitch the idea to Vince McMahon and myself. And I laughed throughout the entire pitch because it was highly entertaining. Jim Myers, George Animal Steel, took great offense that I laughed at the thought of Albert portraying George Jr. And went to Vince and Bruce is laughing at my ideas. And I was like, Vince kind of chastised me for it. I said, Vince, you were laughing too. I said, but I wasn't laughing at the idea. I was laughing at all the possibilities of some of the great vignettes that we could recreate with George the Animal Steel Jr. And I thought that Albert, of all people, could have pulled it off. Right. And I thought it would have been a great gimmick, a way to get George back in the spotlight. Because that son of a bitch back in his day was over. Right. So I thought it was a natural transition for Albert, who had been away at that time for a little while. Um, but Jim, uh, or George the Animal still didn't want to do it because he felt I laughed at it. And I was like, I was laughing with you. I want to do this gimmick. I think it'll be great. But you also can't take an animal with a green tongue. Like, nice. Um, seriously in 2001 at that time. We could get there, but it just wasn't a serious gimmick. He had a run in uh, WWE from 12 to 14, the very beginning of 14, um, with, as Tensai and then Sweet T or whatever his name was when he was with the Funkadactyls. But then he became one of the trainers at NXT at the very beginning of 2014. So he's been there for like four years or so. Does it surprise you that Matt Bloom has become one of the key trainers for the WWE? Um, no. And the reason I say no is because of his coaching ability. What I mean by that is that he was always able to coach and help people. 
like long before. I mean, I even remember him in the dojo. He was, while he would struggle with things, he helped people with other things. So I could see him as a great coach, actually. When did you go? Did you remember like there being a time where you saw that and suggested it before, you know, it actually happened in 14? No, because I thought that he had much more on his career. I really did. And I thought that the, the idea of bringing him in, I hated the Prince Albert gimmick, absolutely hated it because of how it was presented about the, the Prince Albert piercing of one's penis. That, that's how that came about. Um, I just thought it was silly and stupid. And I saw this guy as a big kick ass heel that people could believe in. His work was solid. Um, and I just thought that we missed the boat on him, but he was always also kind of missing that, that intangible, that intangible it factor to take him to the next level. Well, we're glad that he's doing what he's doing because NXT has been really good under his watch. Uh, let's talk about test. Another guy who we've touched on a little bit on the show, but not a ton. He's, he was with the WWF for quite a while and I'm sure we're going to talk about it in, in long form sometime, but it always felt like to me, once the whole marriage to Stephanie angle went by the wayside, he never really got back to that same level. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And it was probably a case of he had, he had the size, probably had the look go right on back to that intangible it factor. He could get so far, but when it came time to kick it into the next gear, I'm not sure that test had that gear to kick it into and he didn't know what to do with it. Even if he did, um, he, he tried to get by on, on size and looks alone and you need more than that. In the torch, it was written, the heels came out to test music, which implies he's a bigger star than Christian. Is that the way the office looks at it? Is there any thought going into whose music is played? No, a lot of times it's Vince saying in the production, me use test music. It sounds better. Okay. Um, Christian hit Scotty with the worm, but test broke up the pin attempt. And then Scotty would backdrop Christian over the top rope and give test an official worm. Uh, test rolled out of the ring and then Christian set up Scotty for the finisher and Albert intervenes and flattens Christian with the Baldo bomb for the win. The torch would say solid action. It's surprising to see Albert get the win over Christian considering the WWF hasn't done much consistently with Albert in the last year. Whereas Christian has been consistently pushed in the intercontinental title range. He gave it a star in three quarters. What'd you think about this as an opener on the pay-per-view? I thought it was very good. I thought that the match, all four guys gelled. I thought it was, was very good. I, I, you know, chuckled at the stuff with the worm and everything. You know, I go back and, and watching Christian, I do remember during this time that he had been asked to cut his hair. He didn't want to cut his hair. And I think that that was a, you know, damn. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do what he's asked to do. Then later on, inexplainably, he cuts his hair. And <laughs> looks great in the process and has, has kept it short ever since. So there were strange little things like that going on at the time. Uh, listening to the commentary and you hear Jerry Lawler drop the Funkadelics. Um, just so far ahead of it. I thoroughly enjoyed the commentary on this pay-per-view as well, but I thought that the match itself was really good for an opener. We should mention that Christian disagrees with your timeline on the haircut. 
And uh, well, he may. You can hear his response over on Edge and Christian's Pod of Awesome. Do you remember awesomeness? Do you remember? Or maybe you haven't. Have you listened to Edge and Christian's podcast? I listened to a few of the first ones, yeah, but I hear it's great. Should we do an impression of their podcast? I got to find it. Well, while you're looking for it, let me say that the key part is to talk like this, I think. The goal is to make everyone turn their microphones up. I don't know if they're doing like... Why do we, why, and we talk like this, can we play kazoos too? I feel like they're doing like a perpetual impression of sweaty balls on Saturday Night Live because there's lots of whispering on that podcast. Lots of whispering. Seriously, if you'd like to check that show out, the episode with Brian is uh, one of the best episodes of a podcast all damn year. Uh, so if you're looking for some free time after you listen to this one in WHW Monday, then by all means, check that one out and go to the Brian one because that's hilarious. You've got to hear the Dave Batista story at the end. Speaking of Edge, next up, he's working with William Regal. They go nine minutes and six seconds, and Edge retains his intercontinental title here. The Torch wrote, at one minute, Edge... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Christian disputes the haircut? Yeah, you can hear, hear all about it I got that from Brian. Podcast. Okay. I don't know what you want me to say. Uh, that's from five minutes ago, that was, and I told that everybody where to listen to it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Anything else you want to say before I start talking about something completely fucking different that's exactly on the format? No. Okay. Uh, a minute in, Edge hit Regal with a top rope drop kick, and then Regal would bail out to ringside for a breather. Edge pursued him, but Regal caught Edge and rammed him into the ring apron. Back in the ring, Regal methodically worked over Edge. Does he have a second gear? Edge kicked out of a pin attempt at 8 minutes and 40 seconds. Edge then surprised Regal with a spear out of nowhere for the win. Passable, but a not short of exciting star in a quarter. That's Wade Keller's take. What say you, Brucey? Solid, but not great. Thought it was a clash of clash of styles, somewhat. Um, I just felt, felt there was something missing. It was good, solid work, but I never got. I never really got into the match, and it was kind of boring. At this time, Regal was doing somewhat of an old-school angle. Uh, he's calling it the power of the punch. He's sneaking brass knuckles into the ring in his tights or various other ways and knocking opponents out with them. It is sort of old-school Memphis. Whose idea was to bring back the brass knucks here? Arn Anderson, I think, was the one that came up with it. And for so many years, guys that used to use the, quote, brass knucks, would take a piece of cardboard and tape it up and then tape a, a handle in it, put it in their trunks. And when they came out to use the brass knucks, would hold it up high so that everybody up in the balcony could see it and then place their hand into it so everybody could see that their fist was now loaded with brass knuckles and hit their opponent with it. Here, we tried to throw some logic by actually using real brass knuckles and have the heel actually try to hide the damn things from the referee and from the audience. Television picked it up, and in that, you know, in that analogy, I thought Regal did a good job with the brass knucks. Regal is uh, coming off a run as the WWF commissioner here. He's, of course, turned heel and cost Kurt Angle the world title against Steve Austin on Raw, and then he joined the Alliance and became their commissioner. 
uh, but he's back working here. Do you think Regal enjoyed uh, working or being the commissioner angle more at this time? Regal, well, both, but he really loved, Regal loved doing the commissioner bit. Right. That was something he could get into, and he had an awful lot of fun doing it. Um, I guess we should mention that the program with Edge continues through the next pay-per-view, and Regal actually wins the Intercontinental title there at the Royal Rumble 02, and he carries it through WrestleMania 18, where he would lose it to Rob Van Dam. Uh, next up on Vengeance, though, we see Kurt Angle tell Ric Flair backstage over and over that he's going to become the undisputed heavyweight champion, something he had never accomplished, talking about Flair, of course. And it's a hilarious segment. Because Angle keeps saying, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to beat him. I'm going to win. I'm going to win it all. I'm going to be the champ. And Flair keeps agreeing over and over and over. I thought this was phenomenal. I think sometimes I forget how great Kurt Angle was at these backstage skits in this era. When you put Kurt Angle in something and you just give him a little tidbit to go with, there was nobody better that could just take it and make the most out of it. And this is a perfect example of, no, I'm going to do it. Okay. No, no, you don't understand. I'm really going to do it. And it was just perfectly played by both guys. As we get ready for the next match, I should remind you that uh, the previous month at Survivor Series, there was a steel cage match where the Dudley boys are taking on the Hardy boys. And there's a chance for Jeff to win the match. But instead, he decides to do the dive off the cage, which actually helps the Dudleys win the match. And that sets up a match between the brothers here at Vengeance where Matt is saying that Jeff's risky style is costing them matches. And this is the first time that they've worked together on a pay-per-view, and it feels like the natural thing for partners to do, but not everybody's for it. Of course, we've talked about the Steiner brothers before, and they never wanted to do this. Of course, they eventually did in WCW, but was there pushback from the Hardys about these guys splitting up and doing singles and having a match against each other? Not at all. They they love the idea and they love the angle. You go back to their Omega wrestling promotion that they had as teenagers, and they worked against each other constantly there with Jeff being his alter ego, whatever the hell that was, and, and Matt being Matt. But that was this was something they were definitely behind and that they liked and that they really wanted to do. Vince didn't see it. You know, this goes back to the brothers don't fight, family doesn't fight. So he wasn't completely into it, but we had really pushed pretty hard that in order for these two to be single stars, we need to break them up and let's, let's make one a heel and one a baby face. I guess we should ask here because you mentioned a minute ago that Hayes is a part of the committee that's helping write TV. And you've told us a lot about his relationship with the Hardys and, you know, obviously on camera, but behind the scenes as well. Does Hayes see this as a good thing to split them up at this time to do a match against each other on pay-per-view or is he sort of pushing against that idea as well? No, I think everybody was on board because the Hardys were also on board. So when you get talent that is excited about doing something, it makes it easier to write for them because they're involved. Um, also, the funny thing about it was, especially at, at this point, I think more people saw Matt as the eventual star. Really? Now, that's yeah. something I wanted to ask because I think a lot of fans have always felt like, especially at this time, that Jeff Hardy was going to be the Shawn Michaels of the group. And 
and maybe that's not the right comparison, but he's going to be the star of the two. And you're saying that maybe the alpha saw it the other way. That was the one that was always bringing ideas. And, and Matt, you know, you, you listen to Matt's promo here talking about being the brains. He was the brains. <laughs> you know, Jeff was happy to be there. Jeff, Jeff was happy to jump off of ladders and take crazy bumps. Jeff had natural charisma. And you listen to the audience reaction when Jeff would walk out and you hear the high-pitched screams of the female members of the audience just loving him. And the guys just thought he was cool. So he had that coolness factor, but from the inside, you're listening to Matt and Matt's different ideas and his appreciation of the business and willing to do any and everything for it. You're, you're rooting for Matt more and thinking, okay, he's got more going on out of his ambition and desire. I guess one of the things that I've always wondered is, the relationship between the brothers and Lita at the time, because I've always been led to believe that they sort of traveled as a group. Was there ever any rift between the three that you recall? Because eventually, you know, three people, it seems like at least two of the people are going to have an issue. Anytime I've known of maybe two guys who were roommates and then one of their girlfriends is over all the time somebody's eventually got an issue with somebody. Do you remember that being the case with them as a group? I don't. And it was always weird. It was, first of all, it was always weird being with the brothers and the, they always got along so well, but that's cool too. This, all three of them had been friends at such an early age and they'd uh, always traveled together. So it was in a lot of ways, a friendship as well as being family and being boyfriend and girlfriend. So, also, I kind of go back to, I don't know that I've ever seen Jeff Hardy really pissed off and, and upset with anybody that I can recall. I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but, you know, nothing really off the top of my head that would make you go, oh, my God, um, Jeff's just kind of a mellow, easygoing guy. I guess we should also talk about um, the fact that Lita is going to be the special guest referee. And on the show, we see um, Matt apologize to Lita about dragging her in the middle of the problems with his, with his brother, Jeff. And he says, after tonight, they're going to celebrate and put all these problems behind them. And then we see this video montage that shows how the Hardys have been wrestling their whole life. All the way going back through the Omega, you know, promotion and these kids growing up doing everything. And even when they were doing jobs, uh, coming in for the WWF, it was, it was a great story. And I thought it worked. I thought people could really get into it because I think that they could relate to it. Jeff Hardy gets the win uh, about 12 and a half minutes in, and Lita is wincing at every move by either of the guys. And it's sort of fun seeing little bit of heel behavior from Matt here. At one point when Matt's beating on Jeff while he's caught upside down in the corner, corner Lita pulls Matt away. And a little later, he has Jeff in a half Boston Crab. But when Jeff gets the ropes, Matt refuses to break until Lita reaches a four count. So we see lots of opportunities where there's a chance for Matt to sort of play it fair, and he doesn't. He pushes right up to the line, and she even stops him from using leverage uh, during a submission uh, or during a pinning combination at one point. 
Eventually, of course, you know the deal. Uh, Lita doesn't see that Matt has his leg under the rope, and she counts three for Jeff. So Jeff is the winner, and Matt is returning to the back right away rather than congratulating his brother like he said he had planned to do, win, lose, or draw. Lita looks disappointed, and uh, Wade would write, not the high spot fest some may have been expecting, but a good match with strong internal storyline and execution throughout two and three-quarter stars. I kind of agree with his assessment here. I think a lot of people, when they think about the Hardys in a match together, they just assume all kinds of crazy high-risk stuff. But instead, they told a really good story, and you start to see maybe one of the most classic stories of all, brothers fighting, right? It is a classic story, and I think that everybody could relate to it, but I also think that it was a clash of styles because the expectation was a lot of high-risk stuff and a lot of high-flying things, and you didn't get that. In addition to that, no no one had turned at this point. So there was no heat, and there was a feeling of, Let's just wait and see what happens instead of giving us a clear, clear baby face and a clear heel to, to cheer for and or to boo. But, you know, watching it 16 years after the fact, you also see the, the emergence of a, of a woken Matt Hardy as well. So the next night on Raw, we've got Matt in storyline breaking up with Lita and he's going to face Lita and Jeff in a handicap match. And the finish of that match saw Lita hit the Lita Rana on Matt. And then the swanton from Jeff misses and Lita tags herself in and gets rolled up for the pin. It's sort of interesting that you guys do this, but by the Royal Rumble, they're sort of back together. Did you guys get cold feet with the breakup or what happened with this stop and start here? Nobody cares. They're better as a team. God, nobody wants to see them fight. I told you it was the dead reaction. And Vince just felt that nobody cared. They're better as a team. So just yeah, don't, don't try anymore. Move on. It, it feels a little, I don't know, like you guys sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater there. Uh, JR made a comment during this match at Vengeance that this is the first time he'd seen a referee wear a thong. Hypothetically, did Brother Love ever wear a thong when he was doing guest, ref, guest referee spots? Well, you know. No, I had to wear shoes. I had to wear, you know, good sneakers to get around the ring and be nimble on my toes. Why would I wear thongs? Hey, what are you old people? You, you say it a lot here on the show. What's the phrase you use for thong underwear? Uh, Trish Stratus enjoyed talking to The Rock on Vengeance here. She comes into The Rock's locker room as he's finishing a phone call, and she says she just wanted to wish him luck and kissed him on the cheek. Rock told her that the only thing he's concentrating on is winning the Undisputed Championship. And he says afterwards, there's going to be plenty of time to celebrate the win. And then he grabs his crotch and walks away. Trish seemed enamored. Art imitating life here, Bruce? They were the two hottest things by God. Hottest female, hottest male in the company. It was good. Thanks for the insight. That's why people tune in here. You know it. The Dudleys beat Big Show and Kane uh, at about six minutes and 50 seconds. And JR points out that Big Show at this point has held both the WWF and WCW titles in his career and they dominate the early offense. And then eventually Stacy comes in the ring 
after about three minutes. And Big Show spanks her. How roll tight is Stacy Keebler in this? Woo. Um. Yeah, we had some really gorgeous, gorgeous women working for us at the time. But uh, watching this and seeing the way that Stacy was manhandled from Big Show grabbing her, the spanking. Holy cow, how far we have come in 16 years. Then they low blow uh, Kane and uh, the Dudleys give Big Show the 3D. Devon comes off the top with the flying headbutt onto Kane's crotch. And later in the show, uh, Kane mistakenly hits Big Show with a top rope clothesline after Bubba moves out of the way. And then Kane helps Big Show, but Show was upset. So they start to argue while the Dudleys recover. Eventually, Big Show gives Bubba a big boot. And then went for a shoulder block, but Bubba moved and show not Kane off the ring apron. So Stacy here has distracted show. And then the Dudleys drop show face first over the exposed turnbuckle and Bubba scores the pin. Uh, the torch would say not bad considering the styles of the four wrestlers star and three quarters. I got to say, I'm a big fan of everybody in the match, including Stacy. So I kind of dug it. What say you, Bruce? I thought it was another clash of styles that didn't really work. I wasn't a big fan of it. I thought that, uh, you know, Big Show and Kane, they're doing what they can. And the Dudleys are used to being, you know, the big tough guys in the match, but they're working against big tough guys. So it was, it was a clash to me and I didn't think it was as good, but I did enjoy Stacy's involvement. And, you know, there you go. Your ECW guys went over. I thought we buried them every time that they were on. <sighs> this is the first of many times that Big Show and Kane are going to attempt to form a tag team. They do it uh, again, uh, or they did it prior to this, on the November 29th episode of SmackDown where they beat the Hardy Boys. And it feels like they were paired up throughout their entire career. What was the fascination with putting these two guys together? Just two big guys, and let's see what it would look like to have two monsters form a team. Two giant monsters together being an immovable force and, and this just giant obstacle that is a seemingly unbeatable team. Eventually, Show and Kane did win the tag titles, but it goes down in like November of 05 when they beat Lance Cade and Trevor Murdoch for the titles. We haven't talked a lot about Cade Murdoch. Do you have any Cade Murdoch stories you could share with us? The Cade Murdoch just whole scenario was trying to figure out something for these two guys to do. You know, Trevor Murdoch was a hell of a hand and he looked like Dick Murdoch, hence the name Trevor Murdoch. And Lance Cade was a big strapping guy from Shawn Michaels school that I had extremely high hopes for. I thought Lance had all the tools. Unfortunately, Lance knew that he had the look and he had the size. He actually had the ability but I'm not sure that his head was always properly in the game as far as he thought he knew more than he actually did. We did some vignettes one night in Tootsie's at, uh, in Nashville, Tootsie's Wild Orchid Lounge. And instead of having fun, they took everything so damn seriously. Damn, I almost got fired for the vignettes because they were so bad. And they just were two guys that should have melded well together, and I enjoyed both of them immensely. But when it came time to performing, I think that they took themselves way too seriously. Do you think it's um, 
Of course, Trevor Murdoch is still with us, but Lance Cade has passed away. Is that a name that surprised you when you heard that he passed away? Yes, very much so. Um, you know, he had, God, to me, he just had it all. I could have seen Lance Cade as WWF champion. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought he had that level upside. It's a shame that we never got to see that, though. Uh, I'm sure we'll do a, a full show on the Dudley Boys sometime in the future, but let's briefly talk about them here. What was the thinking in putting Stacy with them? I mean, obviously, I'm for Stacy being in every segment. I'm not complaining. To try and soften them up. Vince just thought by having Stacy out there, it, it gave people more of a reason to watch. Vince wasn't always the biggest fan of the Dudleys and was always looking for ways to to freshen them up and make them more appealing. Lita went to Matt's dressing room to talk about their problems at this point in the show, but Matt grabbed his bags and stormed off. Um, a little continuation there of the angle. Of course, we're going to talk more about that in our archives. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about The Undertaker because he's had uh, maybe the most illustrious career in company history. We've broken it down a little bit in our archives for 93, 94, but one of our most requested topics is the American Badass Undertaker, Dead Man Inc. Undertaker. A lot of people like this version. Some people don't. We haven't really gotten your take. What do you think of this era Undertaker here? I loved it and I hated it. I I loved it because it freshened up. The Undertaker gave him a whole different character and people accepted it. And it was closer to the human being that Mark Calloway was or and or is. So... The fact that he was able to make that transition spoke kudos to him and to the strength of that character. Um, but I was always partial to Dead Man Taker. I was always partial to the, to the Undertaker, Undertaker in the long trench coat and the Dead Man. Whose idea was it for him to have a different look here? Originally, you know, this was part Mark's idea and he worked with Vince Russo on it at the time. They had looking for something to do different with that character. And Mark wanted to be, he, he's a biker. He loves to ride his bikes. He's a badass. And why not be the American badass? At the same time, you got Kid Rock coming out with, with the song, you know, I am American badass. It all fit <laughs> and it was, it was the perfect storm. Um, this is the first time we've seen him in the company with short hair. And you've talked a lot about how important hair was to the company so much to say that Christian had heat for not cutting his hair. What was the idea and the feeling about the undertaker cutting his hair here? Did he still look cool? You know, you look back on the uh, stuff he did with Jr. before he had the long hair and I'm, I'm watching that in retrospect going again, what's there to hate? A big, cool-looking guy, man, riding his bike out. He's a badass. He kicks everybody's ass. He looks cool. He's got tats all over the place. At least the hair was less stereotypical of that, you know, that long-haired hippie biker. Um, and it gave him a completely different look away from the dead man undertaker. And he liked it, too, because it was the first time he got to cut his hair, and he liked his hair short. Let's talk about Rob Van Dam during this time period. He's a guy who had a lot of buzz for, through 97 on. He had a tremendous run in ECW as their television champion. 
And he makes his debut with Tommy Dreamer on the July 9th episode of Raw this year, 2001. And he's over like Rover. He's very popular right away. And he joins the Alliance and is supposed to be a heel, but the, the fans are cheering him from his debut and they never stop. And a lot of times when he's, you know, working his matches, the commentators would even put over that he was probably the most popular member of the Alliance. And I don't think you could really overlook or ignore his popularity here, but I don't know that his push always lined up with it. So it's cool to see here him working here with the undertaker uh, during this year, 2001, he pinned Steve Austin when Austin was the WWF champion. He pinned Kurt Angle when he was the WWF champion. He pinned the rock. He pinned Chris Jericho more than once. He also pinned Undertaker, Kane, Edge, Big Show, and many others. And all of that happens in the first, like, five or six months he's in the company. So he's super over, and the fans are into it. He's getting wins over everybody, but he's not considered for that world title shot. And there's been talk over the years that sort of behind the scenes, Triple H was down on him. And I'm curious, was there some fire to that smoke is that a real situation where people in the office weren't really sold on rob van dam even though the fans are after him and he's getting wins over the guys but never really positioned to be the top guy well rob was considered as a matter of fact uh to be in that whole top slot and everything and i think that the bigger issue was the reputation that Rob had of being stiff sometimes, missing with some of his kicks and kicking people in the mouth and kicking people in the nose. You know, as old saying goes, it ain't ballet. But even more so than the negatives on Rob, sometimes could be the positives on Rob and the inundation with, you know, Allow me another volley, sir. Rob Van Dam should defeat everyone on the roster on one episode. It should be Raw is RVD. That takes its soul. And, and as much as say negative about someone, one person with their relentless positivity can do just as much harm sometimes. I think Rob was a victim of that, especially at this time. But for Rob, I will never forget, you know, the Alliance stuff. The the jury was – Rob was still relatively new here, and the jury was still out on him. No one knew if he could draw. No one knew what we really had there. So you go back to the Alliance stuff with him and Steve Austin when Steve was doing the what, what, and Steve would listen to his watch. Steve would take his watch and hold it up to his ear and listen to his watch. And I'm doing live shots backstage during raw and i'm nervous as hell because rob didn't always have this personality that came off the off the screen so we're going back and forth and rob's asking me can i do this can i do that and steve is sitting there listening to this and steve says god damn we'll, we'll just do it just just goddamn we'll, we'll be fine don't worry about it we'll do it and they we count them in we're live and Steve is looking at his watch and listening to his watch. You know, this, and Rob reaches over and grabs Steve's arm and goes to listen to the watch. And it was a moment in time with Rob just totally improvising and Rob being Rob, who he was backstage without the cameras. And all of a sudden, Vince is like, God damn, who wrote that? I'm like, nobody wrote it. That was just Steve and Rob totally ad-libbing. 
and being themselves. And then Steve went up and Steve really went to bat for Rob. And that was kind of a turning point for Rob that Vince was like, Oh, Steve likes him. God damn. He can't be that bad. And they, you know, the jury was still out at this point, but kind of anointing him, putting him with, with Undertaker here was a big boost of confidence. In the match, we see the Undertaker win the hardcore title after about 11 minutes and they're pulling out all the stops here. They're working outside of the ring, uh, bumping into the stairs. And then about five and a half minutes in Van Dam dives off the top of the entryway onto Taker that Keller says is about 18 feet to the floor. They do, uh, a leg drop onto a trash can lid on the stage. And then eventually Taker gives Van Dam a last ride. He goes for a second last ride and Van Dam grabs onto the wall of the entrance set to block it. Taker gets a chair, but Van Dam kicks Taker in the gut several times before Taker can hit him. And eventually he lands the rolling thunder and gets a two count. Um, he almost kicks Taker off the stage at about 10 and a half minutes, but eventually he ducks the Van Dam spin kick and then choke slams him off the stage. Van Dam crashes through a bunch of tables and hoses below, and then Taker covers him for the win. And uh, Keller would write, since opening match wrestlers aren't doing these types of matches every night on TV in hardcore matches, this type of match actually seems novel. Nice-looking impact on the final bump, three and a quarter stars. I think that's a nice observation from Wade, because once upon a time, you guys were doing crazy bumps like this every single week. But now since it's not common, it is more special because I thought this match was really fun. I'm a, I'm a fan of Van Dam. I'm a fan of the undertaker and the hardcore title could be sort of silly at times, but it didn't come off silly here in this match. They beat the shit out of each other. And you know, I am a big fan of Rob Van Dam, the person I've always been a big fan of his, his work and stuff. Um, but I thought that his stock rose tremendously here and the match was, it was what it was, but it showed everybody that a taker could do something different and that Van Dam was a player big time here. So it, it was a win-win on all fronts because Vince fell in love with him after this and was like, God damn, maybe. All right. Cause taker came back smiling going, ah, oh, good match. And taker likes it when you bring it to him. Next up on the show, we see Chris Jericho meeting with Ric Flair, and he tells Rick that he should believe in him. And Flair says something like, if you can pull it off, more power to you. And Jericho said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, and then we see the Triple H video, which I think a lot of us still remember very, very well. Throw it in your Google machine if you haven't. You can probably just type in Triple H Beautiful Day because it's U2's Beautiful Day music. And we see Triple H going in for surgery, then the actual surgery. One of the better pieces that you guys have done. Did Sahadi put that together? Yes, he did. But the, the funniest part of all is the reaction afterwards. The audience went banana. Here's, here's a story of this eight month rehab of a guy coming back from this incredible injury. He had been gone. First time they're seeing him in a long time. They cheered. They were like, yay. And Hunter's just back there scowling and stewing because he wants to be a heel. Right. And so he's pissed off that that they want him to be a baby face. But isn't that natural that anytime you have a guy who's been 
who's a top guy who's entertained you, whether you loved him or you hated him. If he's gone for a long time, when he comes back, he's getting a baby face reaction. Everybody's popping because they're excited to see that guy. But this video, the way it was put together, although it was done very, very well, it does make him a sympathetic figure. He does feel like the underdog trying to overcome. Yes, and I think that it would have been even better if he had stretched baby face at last year's WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah, but I've talked about that before, and we'll talk about it again. Well, well let's mention it here because we're going to get lots of questions about it. The Vengeance 2001 poster is Triple H resting his chin on a sledgehammer and a lot of people assume when they see the poster like that oh he's coming back here it's actually the next month that he would return to raw and then enter and of course win the royal rumble in atlanta what do you remember about the timeline here were you guys thinking that vengeance would have been his opportunity to come back and then he just didn't rehab as quickly as you hoped well, he, that was the answer. He did not rehab as quickly as everybody had hoped. Initially, he was making great strides, but as I always say, when guys try to overdo it, they initially make great strides. Unfortunately, that affects them in the end, and that's what happened here with Triple H. We had talked about him coming back here and this being his triumphant return, but didn't happen, and you go to plan B. Um, let's talk about the, um, the original plan for vengeance, because you said this is plan B was the original plan to still be a tournament, but triple H win it, or what would the main event main event for vengeance have been? Had he been able to perform? Well, really it was just going to be all about, you know, his return. And I think that at the time we had talked about him and Jericho, even at that time, because Jericho was a heel and it was just somebody for triple h to come back and beat but it was it wasn't necessarily really an issue or anything like that it was more about his triumphant return after eight months coming back when you didn't have that you're like oh fuck it makes me really happy for you to say that because you said that the idea with putting it with jericho is it's somebody for him to come back and beat that was going to be one of my questions later but we'll address it now it felt like that Jericho was was essentially a transitional champion because you don't want to have Triple H beat Kurt Angle or beat The Rock or beat Steve Austin. So instead, we can elevate a new guy, see how he does for a few months, put him in a prime spot, but then when the 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 prodigal son returns, then we'll we'll put the strap on him. And so it feels like when he's not able to perform at Vengeance. You call an audible, you have him win your second biggest show of the year, maybe third, with the Royal Rumble, and then he headlines WrestleMania, even though it's not really the main event, even though it's on last, and he wins the world title there. But it all sort of feels like Jericho as champion is sort of a second thought through the whole process. Was that the plan, or are you going to say that Jericho didn't have it? No, it was... The championship itself was a second thought to to Rock and Hogan and Austin and, and Ramon. Those were the two in Vince's mind, I think, that he saw as the biggest uh, biggest attractions for WrestleMania and that that third attraction was getting the championship on Triple H. So I believe that Vince looking at the NWO coming back and not with them being the opponents for Rock and Austin – um, once we got into it, not, you know, having Nash as the backup for Hall, but 
than Jericho being the natural opponent for Triple H and a guy for him to beat. And at that point, it was to put the title on Triple H at WrestleMania, have him beat a heel. Let's talk about um, the way the return is positioned. Is this something that you guys are in constant communication with Triple H? Is he still making towns? Like, is he at this event? Yes. Okay. So is he a part of the talks with the booking committee about the way his return will be handled or no? Yeah, all talent is, you know, he's he was in the agent meeting. He was in the agent meeting at this point, and he was helping out backstage. Okay. Definitely. When do you remember him being a more regular part of those discussions? Not just for his stuff, but for everyone's. Can you pinpoint a year? Man, you know, not God. He never really was a regular part of those discussions until after I left. Okay. He was never a part of our, he was never a part of our creative meetings. He was a part of agent meetings and production meetings day of, but he was never really a part of our creative meetings during the week. Next up, we've got Trish working with Jacqueline and uh, we should mention that Trish is still very young in her wrestling career at the time. She had just won the world title the previous month at Survivor Series in a six pack challenge. And prior to that, she'd been hurt down with her ankle and out of action for about three months because of it. Did you have any idea what a strong performer Trish was going to be eventually? Or at this point, is it just sort of easy to see? We'll look at her. We've got to push her. It was a lot of potential and hoping that she was going to get a lot better. And unfortunately we didn't have a whole lot to work with at this point, but Trish was at least showing the desire to get in there and bust her ass and learn how to work on a nightly basis. We've heard a lot about her working really hard to sort of hone her craft and where a lot of people maybe weren't as interested in the work when they were in her position. She was, what did she do differently than a lot of the other women that let you guys know she was trying to go the extra mile to be better bell to bell. She put the time in, and she got there early, and she worked out with the agents. You take uh, Stacy Keebler and Tori Wilson. They never got into the bit. They never wanted to get into the business to be a wrestler. They got into the business as a valet or just something else at WCW. When they came to the WWF, all of a sudden they're being put into uh, physical parts that they hadn't been trained for before. Trish came into the business to be a worker. She always wanted to be a wrestler. So that was her goal. She wanted to be the best, and she constantly got to the buildings early, would get in the ring with the guys and work out before the shows, and she had a desire to better her craft. Let's talk about, um, and, and I don't know if, if we'll ever talk about this really, but it felt like for a minute there was an on-screen romance teased between her and Jeff Hardy, and then it just sort of went away. What was up with that? Again, trying to trying to get Jeff to have more personality. Jeff was uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, Trish was always Trish was always gay, man. She always had ideas. And she would listen and she would try pretty much anything, man. Um, it's just that there wasn't a whole lot of chemistry there. And Vince looked at it, was like, not feeling it. Next, move on. 
not nobody's going to buy that because there wasn't any chemistry. They didn't. He didn't feel it. What do you think was um, Vince McMahon's favorite part of this match with Trish and Jackie? The finish. No. The titties. Chocolate titties. And on the other side, vanilla titties. Mm. With chocolate centers. Mm. Creamy chocolate center. Okay, okay. We're getting a little too deep here. Ow. Um Jackie's been in the business a long time at this point. How did she feel about working with the young Trish here? Did they get along good? Well, one of the reasons that Jacqueline was brought in was to teach Trish. Right. And to get to get in the ring on a nightly basis so that they could work in front of a crowd and Jackie could teach her and take her time with her. Jackie liked Trish because Trish had a desire to get better. And Trish is a tough son of a gun. So Jackie is about as tough as they come, guy or girl. And as much as Jackie dished it out, Trish was right there and came back every single night. So Jackie grew to respect Trish. So she didn't have a problem helping her out. And she kind of liked it, took it as a, as a challenge to make Trish better. How do you think Jackie was as a mentor to the young girls? Excellent. Uh, Trish gets a pin here, uh, three minutes and 34 seconds in. She's going to retain her title. Jackie hit Trish with some stiff moves here, kept short. Lawler was bug out after the match and couldn't take his eyes off Trish as she left the ring, even as Ross began hyping the upcoming segment. Very sloppy match at times. That is all directly from the torch. Wade gave it a quarter star. It's, it's fun to sort of go back and see early days of the women's division like this. Because you compare it to the women's wrestling we get now, and there really is no comparison. But, of course, we know Trish is going to become much, much better in time. What did you think of this match in hindsight? thought it was sloppy and it sucked. Um, you know, the you listen to the commentary, too, and it was it was brutal from Lawler talking about, Ah, oh, look at Trish's puppies. They're pointers. Um, just the constant sexual overtone references. And, you know, I hate to see Trish go, but I love to watch her leave. Um, wow. Absolutely brutal. But the, the match, the match was tough to watch. They, they definitely, it was not that one of their best outings. Next up, we get a video package hyping up the title tournament here. And I guess we should remind you that Austin and Angle had several great matches in the months leading up to this. They wrestled at a couple of pay-per-views, uh, and of course we had um, the situation where Angle beat uh, Austin in Pittsburgh a few weeks after 9-11 for the world title, and then a few weeks later on Raw, Austin would win the title back from him. And now we've got this match, and they've done a ton of entertaining skits together. I think everybody remembers the cowboy hats, where Austin brought one for himself and gave one to Vince, and then he gave Vince the kitty cowboy hat, uh, and then, of course, later they were feuding and Kurt kidnapped Austin and took him to a bridge, blindfolded him and put him in a kiddie pool, which we've talked about in our archives. But for some reason, I don't feel like the Austin Angle feud gets talked about nearly as much as some of the stuff he did with Undertaker, Triple H or The Rock. Why do you think that is? I think this is criminally underrated stuff here with Angle and Austin. It is, and I think that the reason it probably doesn't get talked about nearly as much is because both guys were hurt during this time, so you didn't see a lot of matches and physicality between the two. 
it was some of the most entertaining stuff that people still bring up to this day that they remember the the cowboy hats with Steve walking through an airport in San Antonio and seeing the little kitty cowboy hat and buying it for Kurt and then buying uh two regular size hats coming to TV. I got an idea. Let's try this. And not telling any of us what it was. And then what you saw on screen was a first take live. Steve going, let me just try this. Let me just try this. And the chemistry between Vince Austin and Kurt Angle off the charts. But those were some times that we were able to just play and they didn't have Neither guy could touch. Both guys were recovering from injuries. So I think that it gets downplayed because there wasn't enough physicality between the two during that time. Well, it's great stuff. If you get a chance, you know, sometime go check that stuff out. Some of the best stuff, I think, both of their careers. They're going to have a good match here. Keller's going to give it three and a quarter stars. They go 15 minutes. Steve Austin gets the win. They start with a stare down. They do a little bit of feeling out with each other. Uh, and then, uh, lots of chops with tons of woos from the crowd, which, uh, it's kind of fun to see that they were doing that even all the way back then. Uh, eventually we see angle lock Austin in a figure four leg lock wrapped around the ring post, like Bret Hart used to do. Uh, and about 10 minutes in angle would give Austin an overhead belly to belly suplex, which looks phenomenal. Uh, and then a series of suplexes for a near fall. And it was pretty routine. At this point, and then we would see Austin deliver five German suplexes on angle, something we hadn't seen out of Austin before, but I thought was pretty fun. Eventually Austin scores a very near fall and then angle low blows Austin and gives him the angle slam for a two count. And then it's time for our finish. Austin catches angle with the stoner for the clean win. Um, it would be written by Keller. Good match, but not so good that the other two quote unquote couldn't follow it. It was what it needed to be. Three and a quarter stars. I didn't think it was as good as some of their pay-per-view matches before, but considering we know that they're going to have to work again or Austin's going to have to work again, I thought it was pretty good. What do you, what do you think, Bruce? You know, my takeaway on it watching, I forgot just how green Kurt Angle could be in certain situations. Um, the, the other takeaway from it was I miss Steve Austin. <laughs> I, I, I miss someone like Steve Austin. That character was so strong. And watching his work at this time, you know, his knees were gone, his neck was gone. Man, everything that he did made you believe. He was unorthodox as hell, but his stuff, people were in to every single thing that he did. His selling was unique, everything about it. Um, and then... You watch Kurt Angle and go, man, he's greener and goose shit, but fuck, he looks good. Let me ask you, you've seen, you've said that twice now. What do you see as somebody who's seen 40,000 matches in their life? What do you see in a Kurt Angle here at Vengeance that makes you think he's green? Smarten us the fans up. Hesitation, hesitation and waiting for Steve and going into going into things, knowing how Kurt's mind works, knowing that he's going into a spot, but Steve being in a different position, the veteran would know, give me time, let him get up, let him get into the position before you go, find something else to do. Kurt was rushing during a lot of it. Again, that's, that's me being extremely nitpicky and looking at it, you know, with a fine tooth comb. The average 
audience member isn't going to look at that and go, oh, I, he's, he's green. They wouldn't know. But watching it, again, it just made me appreciate a, a talent like Steve Austin being able to take Kurt, make Kurt look as good as he did. And the adaptability of a Kurt Angle as green as he was being as good as he was at that level. I just was, you know, takes you back in time and makes you go, shit, those are two of the greatest talents that ever laced up a pair of boots. So Jericho is working with rock here. They're going to go 19 minutes. Jericho, of course, gets the win Uh, on the way there. We see Jericho start to disassemble the ringside announcers table. He removes the monitors uh, which I guess in, in hindsight, I've always wanted to ask this. If you're trying to hurt the guy, <laughs> thank you. Why would you? No, you're the monitor? using my analogy. Don't use my logic on this. It drives me insane. Why? Yes, you're trying to hurt the guy. So I would body slam him or do whatever I'm going to do on top of the monitors, but it's to get a nice clean place to take a bump on. And, uh, plus it's pretty cool when you throw equipment. That's always nice. It is fun. Uh, eventually, of course, you know, since Jericho set the table up, it's not going to go down that way. Uh, rock sets up the, the, um, the rock bottom and eventually Jericho showboats for too long and rock blocks it and DDTs Jericho through the table. Uh, eventually rock recovers from a wall of Jericho and he gives Jericho a rock bottom, but he spends way too much time prior to making a cover. So it doesn't work. McMahon comes down to ring the bell and talks to the ref about something. Rock punches McMahon off the ring apron and then gives Jericho a spine buster. He throws McMahon into the ring and gives Jericho the people's elbow. And then Jericho gave the rock a low blow and then a rock bottom of his own. So the ref counts three and Jericho wins with a rock bottom. And uh, this got high marks in the torch, four and a half stars what did you think of Jericho's coming out party here against The Rock? I thought it was very good, I, I, with the exception of the sleeper hold, which I know Chris listens to this show, and Chris Jericho is my favorite wrestler in the whole wide world right now. But, um, Chris, it was the worst damn sleeper in the history of sleeper holds. Um, but that happens sometimes. The match itself, I thought it was tremendous, man. It was high energy and you had a, you had a good strong heel and the strongest damn baby face in the company putting on a clinic out there. And it was a lot of fun to watch even after 16 years. It's, uh, it's worth mentioning, of course, that Jericho has a podcast too. Talk is Jericho. Lots of fun stuff over there. I want to recommend highly his interview with Jimmy Jacobs. If you're interested into a, a peek behind the curtain of the machine today in 2017, his interview with Jimmy Jacobs is about as close as it's going to get. Lots of Vince McMahon stories and whatnot. Go check out the Jimmy Jacobs, Chris Jericho interview if you haven't already. Talk is Jericho is the name of the podcast, like you didn't already know that. Um, the backstory to this, of course, is these guys work together at No Mercy uh, with Jericho beating The Rock to win the WCW world title, which was Jericho's first world title. And the storyline going into that match was that Jericho couldn't win the big one. And the next night on Raw, they teamed up and defeated the Dudley boys to win the tag titles. Of course, they lost those on November 5th, uh, and then Rock would defeat Jericho to regain the WCW world title. I kind of feel like this is maybe the era where the world titles start to become a little bit hot potato. Was the thinking in putting the, the belt on the Rock so quickly there and then dropping it here 
just that you wanted to be able to say that Rock was also a WCW world champion? Or is there any thought given to silly shit like that? No, the, the, the thought was trying to give that championship some credibility by putting it on the Rock. To the WWF audience, you got to understand it's they're not they weren't WCW fans. So coming in, you you didn't have the Ric Flair's, you didn't have the Hulk Hogan's, you didn't have a lot of those guys that had previously immediately been in WCW. And it was an attempt to give that championship some credibility. Let's talk a little bit about the rock, because I know that he really has an affection for belts and he's collected all of his world titles. Uh, I know through the grapevine that he wanted to keep the very last spinner when he beat CM Punk for it, when he debuted the new belt, but, uh, the company wound up getting that back. But I do think he got to keep like the first scratch logo belt. I think he's got one of those. And I think he's got even like his first world title he won down in Memphis. So I know he collects a lot of these belts. And we saw in his feud with John Cena a few years ago that he's got trophy cases of these belts. Was him being the WCW world champion or, or carrying that big gold belt? Was that something that Rock expressed any sort of interest in, or, I mean, did you know that he was a belt guy back then? I knew that, yeah, God, I think most of those guys that get the opportunity to to carry the championship, I would like to think that it meant something to all of them. And Rock did like to either have one made or, or just take the one that he had, which was ring-worn. So I do, I do not just think, I know that it meant something to Rock to wear that championship because to him it was he looked at the legacy beyond wcw he kind of looked back at that old nwa legacy in the whole nine yards do you think that um the rock may have been somebody sort of pushing hey man let me win that bill um no because that was really i he may have but i know it was more us saying okay Let's do this with Rock. These two guys have a really interesting situation here because, you know, we're talking about this is really the night that Jericho was made, in my opinion, Vengeance 2001. But at No Mercy is when he won his first world title, even though it's not really because it's the WCW world title when he beat The Rock. But you go back, and they're a tag team champion the very next night. But you go back to the very beginning when Jericho made his debut on Raw, which I'm sure we're going to cover sometime eventually. He has a promo with the rock and it feels like Jericho and the rock have sort of been intertwined. And that's sort of the start of his WWF run. And this feels like the peak, at least at this point. And we know he would go on to have even greater highs, especially creatively. What was their relationship like? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, I was a huge Jericho fan of WCW, his shit with Ralphus and pitching a fit and, you know, the computer printout of all the different holds with the arm bars and calling Ray Mysterio, Ron Mysterio and the crazy hair and, uh, Monday night Jericho instead of Monday night Nitro. I was a huge fan of all that, but it felt like when you guys put him with the rock and the rock sort of gobbled him up on the mic, it brought him down a notch in my mind. It didn't feel like the same Chris Jericho that I had loved in WCW it felt like sort of fodder for the rock. And I think it took a little while for him to overcome that. Do you disagree? Completely. I thought that it elevated him to be able to hang in that environment 
live and I thought that it showed everybody who he was, his quick wit and being able to hang there and do that. I thought it was great to this day. And I'll never forget the about, I don't know, three or four days after that, my middle brother coming up to me and saying, who was the guy with the funny hair out there with the rock? God, he was great. And now they didn't know uh, he's not a big fan of wrestling, but he saw that he knew who rock was and he remembered the guy with the funny hair. Um, but I thought that it elevated Jericho at that point just to have him. He came in on top with the top guy and he hung with him and in my opinion was able to maintain it. Sure. He had a rough time at the very beginning, but he always came out of it and Son of a bitch is a, is a pro. And I always say, you know, like right now, I uh, was talking to him the other day and I said, yeah, you're still my favorite wrestler <laughs> right now. And in 2017, to think Chris Jericho would still be my favorite, most innovative wrestler. I love the shit he's doing right now. And I was a big fan of his back then too, but I thought that elevated him. Well, I guess since we're, uh, we don't have a podcast covering the current stuff, what do you think about him working a match for New Japan? I mean, it's their WrestleMania, Wrestle Kingdom. He's the alpha. He's taking on Kenny Omega. Lots of buzz about the way it's been built up. Uh, I think Jericho is sort of the blueprint of what every young wrestler should strive to be. He sort of gets to do what he wants on his terms, when, how, and where he wants. You know, he wants to go, you know, be a musician. No problem. Go make a CD and tour and win all kinds of awards. He wants to do some stuff for VH1, no problem. He wants to go start a podcast network, no problem. He wants to come in but just work house shows, he's got that too. He wants to come in but kind of write his own segments and do what he wants. Okay, he can do that. Now, New Japan, it feels like he's just sort of working through a professional wrestler's bucket list, is he not? Well, I think Chris Jericho's a good study of the right things to do when you're a heel. He's not afraid of heat. He's very old school in, in everything that he does and how he approaches the business. Uh, Kenny Omega, uh, I've seen a few of his matches, but the fact that everybody's talking about him makes him over. Okay. <laughs> whether you agree with how he works his matches and whether you're a fan or not, you can't deny that he's a merchandising machine and he's got people talking. So to be able to take that on the other side of the world and make it relevant over here uh, is ingenious on New Japan's part. It's ingenious on Kenny Omega's part. And they couldn't have done it without Chris Jericho. Uh, Jericho positioned himself in the right place at the right time. I think the match is going to be huge for everybody. And it's probably going to be a good uh, step to get new Japan more recognized in the States just with that one match. Um, let's talk about the rock here at vengeance. I mean, he put it, he put Jericho over at no mercy and now he's doing it again here at vengeance. We've never really heard about the rock protesting the finish the way we have Austin or triple H or some others. Did Rock have a problem putting over Jericho or anybody else that you recall? <laughs> uh, not with Jericho, no. I think the only, and this wasn't a problem. This was more of a Rock not wanting to do something. We were in Florida for a couple of days of TV and Rock was also in Florida. So he came by to say hello and ask, Hey, you know, I'm here, man. Maybe I'll do something on Raw and have a little fun and bing, bing, bing. 
so Brian wrote something for him on Raw, and Rock went out, looked like a million bucks, and has a lot of fun. And so I get my chance to pitch Rock, and I'm like, well, hey, man, listen, uh, since you're going to be around, why don't you come on over to SmackDown tomorrow? And I'd love to do something with you and Piper and maybe uh, get do a little physicality with Sean O'Hare. And he just looked at me and he goes, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but uh, I don't think Jimmy Jack, uh, whatever, O'Hare is ready for a rock bottom just yet. So uh, see you later, Bruce. Love you. Got to go. <laughs> was out the door. But it wasn't that he had a problem with Sean O'Hare. I just don't think he wanted to come to TV the next day. Let's talk about, before we get to the main event, lots of people have asked over the years, because I know a lot of fans at the time, they didn't know that Jericho was going to be who Jericho is. And so a lot of people were doubters. And I remember a lot of my friends at the time felt like he didn't even deserve to be in this spot. It should have been someone else. It should have been The Undertaker or someone else. Do you remember there being any sort of discussion as to whether or not Jericho was worthy of being in this tournament or was everybody pushing for it? Was there one vocal voice anti Jericho, whether it's in the office or the boys or anybody at this point? By the time we got to the four, no, you know, everybody else undertaker had, had a different program going on at the time. Triple H is hurt. So everybody had their picks. You know, there was, like I said before, there, there were those that really wanted Austin felt, you know, if you're going to do your first undisputed champion, it's got to be stone cold. He's the only man. He's got to take it. Then there were those that rock is the hot, hottest guy in the company. You got to go with rock. It's tradition. Um, there were those Jericho's new. No one's going to call it. Then there was me saying Kurt Angle's an Olympic gold medalist. He's got credibility and he has the long term. In my opinion, that uh, Kurt Angle was the long-term guy with the most upside. Um, it was split, and it, I dare say, man, it was split pretty fucking evenly. But in Vince's mind, knowing what Vince knew, and even before Vince asked that question of everybody about the NWO, I think Vince had in his head what he was going to do. Right. And he needed Rock and Steve for that. So to him, it came down Angle or Jericho, Jericho or Angle. In hindsight, you know, being what we, how it all played out with the NWO and whatnot, wouldn't it have been, and we're armchair quarterbacking way, way, way later, wouldn't it have been more interesting since Triple H went down with the injury when he was tagging with Steve Austin? Um, wouldn't it have been better if Austin would have won here and then Triple H wins the Rumble and now the former tag partners? have to face each other for the title at WrestleMania and Triple H with the big baby face reaction gets his big moment at WrestleMania beating Steve Austin. That ship had sailed. You think so? That ship had sailed the year before. And and by the way, and we'll get into this when when we get into into WrestleMania, whatever that was, seventeen. Um yeah, that ship had sailed. And to get there, to do that at this point in time, Vince never would have done it because it would have split the audience. But had Steve gone full-fledged heel and Triple H gone full-fledged babyface a year before, yes, that was your match. What a cool story that could have been, but yeah, it wasn't to be. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I pretty much thought so. Do you think that um, a tournament like this, to combine the belts, 
it feels, and maybe this is just me, and maybe I'm a little old school in this, but it feels like all pay-per-views are throwaways, with the exception of WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and the Royal Rumble, and maybe Once Upon a Time, King of the Ring, and maybe Once Upon a Time, Survivor Series. But really and truly, for the last I don't know how many years, SummerSlam, WrestleMania, Royal Rumble. And we've got a big tournament like this where we're combining belts with the biggest stars in the business, and it's at something called Vengeance. It feels forgettable, does it not? No, I don't. I think that, and and really, it wasn't even a tournament. It was taking two personal issues with Austin and and Angle and Rock and Jericho, and getting rid of one of the belts. I mean, we didn't even go the full tournament route. Well, that's my question. To get Is, there, if you're going to combine the belts, why wouldn't you do a bigger tournament like sixteen or eight guys or whatever it may be? Sort of WrestleMania four style to combine it as opposed to two with one guy working back to back. Cause Vince didn't want to, he just wanted to forget about that other championship. Did Vince hate tournaments at this point? Vince goes in cycles. Right. Um, he, he's not a big tournament fan, which is why we stopped doing King of the Ring for a long time. Right. Um, leading up to the event, it was first announced by Flair that it was going to be a unification match between Austin, the WWF champ, and The Rock, the WCW champ, to unify the titles. Was there ever any consideration to let's just make it Austin versus Rock? Yes, but the the whole question of who's it going to be, that definitely would have been the bigger attraction. Sure. Austin versus Rock. Um but then you would have had to beat one of them Austin, by the other. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Austin has had um, a little bit of a reputation that we've talked about here on the show, not always going along with the creative. Was he easy to sell on this? As far as the... Well, that he's not winning and that Jericho is, because it feels like something that he maybe would have tried to campaign for one way or another. Well, yeah, because Vince Vince is selling the bigger plans. Right. At that time... Is he promising Steve Austin Hulk Hogan? No. At that time, he's not telling anybody anything. That's why it, in the in the moment, it's all kind of confusing because you're thinking, well, surely he's not going to bring these guys in when nobody wants them here. Why in the fuck are we doing this over here? And it just was all very confusing, and it was like pulling teeth. So... There was a lot of unknown, even within, where Vince was holding so much close to the vest until he knew exactly what he had, and he's playing it out in his mind. It's like the, the Lawrence Taylor thing, where he knew what he wanted to do, but he had to get there first before he was going to let us in on the rest of it. Well, we're going to let you in on a little secret now, and that's that Bruce and I are coming to Philadelphia. And we're doing it the day before the Royal Rumble, and we're going back to the ECW Arena. So I gotta tell you, N52. What an asshole! Come see us and throws things at Bruce. We can't wait to see you, ECW Arena, and we're doing something pretty nine. cool. Can you sell the tickets, or you want to yell like a fucking asshole? Hey, that was people ask me why I didn't do that. Okay, well I'm gonna ask you why you don't let me sell. You said, hey, let's sell the gimmicks, and I'm over here trying to sell the gimmicks. 
At pronounspal.com? Pronounspal.com is exactly where to go. And I can't believe the, the luck here that you're going to get because there's going to be a really cool Icons of Wrestling convention and fan fest during the day. And you, I think they're even doing like a four horsemen reunion. So Ric Flair's there, JJ Dillon's there, Arn, Tully, Barry, the whole crew. But then that night, Jake Roberts is going to take the stage at eight o'clock and he's going to do his one man show. And at the conclusion of NXT, Bruce and I are going to hit the stage and we've got some fun surprises for you. This is only going to happen one time. It's a two back to back double header podcast show. You get Jake Roberts one man show and then you get something to wrestle. And you get it all for just 75 bucks at the ECW arena. Bruce and I are going to be happy to meet with you, do a meet and greet afterwards. We are really looking forward to being there. We want to do your pictures. We want to do your autographs. We want to meet you. Come see us. Icons of Wrestling Convention and Fan Fest. There's only one place to do it. It's pronounspal.com. It's at the corner of Swanson and Rittner in South Philadelphia, the old ECW arena. And with all the shit that Bruce has given that building, I can't wait to see what he has planned Come check us out, pronounspal.com. It's the day before the Royal Rumble. I want to reiterate, if you're going to NXT, you do not have to choose. You'll be able to finish NXT and then cruise over to the arena and see Bruce and I do our live show at pronounspal.com. So let's talk about the match itself. Jericho and Austin are going to work 12 and a half minutes before Jericho becomes the undisputed heavyweight champion uh, the bell starts well after the action has already started because Angle runs in and nails Austin with a chair. Rock comes in and gives Jericho a rock bottom. All hell has broken loose. And when the bell finally rings, our competitors are on their back. Uh, these guys pull out all the stops here, and Austin's really working his ass off, considering he's as beat up as he is. But Jericho's positioned to be the Iron Man. There's lots of ref bumps. There's low blows. McMahon comes out and brings out Nick Patrick. Nick Patrick is encouraging Jericho to cover Austin. And then Flair yanks Patrick out of the ring. Flair and Vince get into it on the outside. And this is, I guess, Flair's first bump in the WWF in 10 years. Uh, and then Vince throws Flair into the ring post. Austin stomping away at Vince at ringside. And back in the ring, Austin gives Jericho a Thez press. And then he's working all of his usual moves, the vertical elbow drop. And one of my favorite moments in the match is where we see Austin put Jericho in the walls of Jericho. Jericho's tapping out, but there's no ref there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Booker T slides in, grabs the world title, nails Austin with it from behind, and then Vince rolls Earl Hebner into the ring, who makes a slow and groggy, deliberate three count. Jericho grabs for both belts, and uh, the crowd is not sure what to make of this. Nobody saw it coming. And Vince returns to the back with a huge smile on his face. And I couldn't help but remember the opener when he says, he who laughs last laughs loudest. Um, Wade would say it was a solid main event. He gave it three and a half stars. I enjoyed the story more than the match, but I still think considering both of these guys had just worked long matches, pretty damn good effort here. Wouldn't you agree? I thought it was a great story. And what brought it all together is if you listen to the commentary throughout the night, the commentary directed you to one match at the end of the night, Austin Rock. And the last three matches, the commentary brought everything around to the most important thing being the undisputed championship. And what the hell is Jericho doing in this match? And they made it 
important. They made everything about this match feel real from, you know, JR's commentary. Lawler analyzing was the best job Jerry Lawler that I may have ever heard. I, I probably just forgot about it, but, but Lawler analyzing this match and what it meant at the end of the night is, is what he should have been doing instead of puppies and all that other crap all the time. But it made it important. I thought that it, it served its purpose. And at the end of the night, nobody, but nobody had called Jericho winning that damn thing. I think it left people with a what now feeling that you had to tune in tomorrow night for all. Uh, Jericho said he didn't find out he was winning until the day of the event. He said he was eating with the undertaker earlier in the day. And Vince came up and said, Hey, taker, uh, how do you know when business is going down the toilet? Because we're putting the belt on Jericho. And that's how I found out I was going to be champion. So that's what Jericho wrote. Do you remember that joke? <laughs> I think that's it's not a joke. That's not a joke. What the hell is that? It's hilarious. <laughs> Jericho wrote, I came back through the curtain and everyone was gone because when you're on last, everybody leaves to get out of the traffic quicker. So I sat there by myself and then drove to a hotel room where room service stopped at midnight and it was 1158. They wouldn't serve it. So I got pizza. They wouldn't bring it to my room, so I had to go down to the lobby and get it. When I got back up, I was locked out. I went back down to the lobby. The guy wouldn't let me in, even though I just checked in a few minutes earlier. So I dropped the pizza on the floor when he finally did let me in. So I spent the first night being undisputed champion, eating cold, fuzzy pizza in a Ramada Inn somewhere in Anaheim, California. So no hooker and blow there, kids. Not the most glamorous life. I think a lot of people assume when you win the world title like this, there's going to be this huge celebration and everybody's popping champagne. And that's not exactly how it went for Jericho. Do you remember hearing this story or any other funny stories about the guy finally becoming the guy and his after party maybe leaving a little to be desired? Yeah, I think that Chris's explanation and description of what it's like is probably more accurate than the BS stories of celebration, which are probably fewer and far between. Uh, it's just another night on the road, and it's uh, on to the next show. Got to get on the road next. Let's talk about uh, what was next, because a lot of people were sort of skeptical about Jericho as champion. Now, the next night on Raw, Flair opens the show with both world titles, and he talks about how he's going to present the new champion with his title tonight and brings out Jericho, and Jericho has a list of names of people to thank with the most important being himself, and he brags about proving everyone wrong and thanks Rock and Austin for their performances last night. And, of course, he began the tradition of bragging about how he beat The Rock and Austin in the same night. And he thanks all the little people who supported him before moving on to Flair. And Jericho tells Flair that he has the honor of presenting him with the titles, making him the first and only undisputed champion. And Flair puts the belts on his shoulders and says that tonight, Jericho is defending the title in a cage match against Steve Austin. Was there ever any consideration that even though we're making him the champion here, perhaps having him drop it the very next night? No. Okay. Near the end of the match, it looks like Austin's going to win. He nails a stunner on the champ. He's crawling towards the door, and then out of nowhere, here's Booker T to slam it on his head. That allowed Jericho to escape, and it's the second night in a row that Booker has cost Austin the undisputed title. 
Um, they would go on to have the supermarket, the supermarket fight we all remember, but none of this ever really paid off with a big pay-per-view match between the two. Why did Booker T and Steve Austin never have a, a sustainable feud after this? Unfortunately, this was a product of the NWO coming in, and that was not the original plan. The original plan was for Booker and Steve to have that payoff. I thought that Booker and Austin had tremendous chemistry. The storyline was fun. They enjoyed working with each other as best I ever knew, and it was entertaining as hell. But for Vince, it was time, you know, next. Just just drop it and go. we we got to move over here, and now it's time to – to get the NWO over. And I think that we could have, man, we just needed to bundle it up and put a, put a bow on it. We could have had some really fun stuff there. I'm sure we'll talk about it on our Booker T episode. If anybody ever votes for it, despite me campaigning for it, uh, Jericho is a lifelong wrestling fan. Did you ever talk to him about what it meant for him to win the world title the first time? Sure. It was, I mean, that's the culmination of a dream as a kid to be the world champion. And when you actually do it and you feel it, there's that's the highest of all highs. And for somebody that loved the business as much as Jericho did and does, man, it doesn't get any better than that. Keller was skeptical of Jericho's push right away. He wrote, one key necessity for Jericho's push to have any positive impact on business is for him to hold on to the title for months. If Jericho loses the title any time in the next two months, his pay-per-view victory and title reign will be perceived as just a means to an end, a transition from one storyline to another, and not an honest attempt to build around Jericho. There are mixed signals regarding whether the WWF is committed to that. Jericho lost on TV last week to both The Rock and Steve Austin. Jericho fans may see that as a knock, but there is logic behind the move. For one, they were setting up Jericho as an underdog heading into the pay-per-view, so his win would be all the more surprising. They were also attempting to create the impression that Jericho is the type of champion who can lose the belt at any time. He's not a powerhouse dominating heel champion. The key for Jericho is to appear to be a vulnerable heel champion, but not a fluke heel champion. The length of his reign will determine how his victories are remembered, and if he holds the title for a while, even if it's by cheating, he will be seen as a vulnerable champion who figures out every which way possible to retain the belt. Ric Flair had that reputation as a heel champion in the 80s. He had a knack for making his babyface opponents look better than him, yet in the end, he would squeak away with the title belt still in his possession. Is that sort of the idea? You wanted to position him as a vulnerable champion? Yes, beatable, that every guy in the arena feels that I could kick that guy's ass. And that's really like the best possible type of heel, right? I mean, to me, it feels like it, you make more guys that way. I, I grew up on that, and I grew up on the heel champion. So it's it's what I always knew and what I always preferred because you want to build your baby faces. And if they're chasing something, I just liked it better. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what Jericho did after this. He would go on to defeat The Rock at Royal Rumble. And he would again beat Austin at No Way Out, that time with help from the NWO. And, of course, we know he eventually lost the belt to Triple H at WrestleMania 18. Overall, how would you rate Jericho's undisputed title reign? Would you call it a success? Yes, because it gave him something to talk about for the next you know, 15, 16 years. I was the first undisputed champion beating the two biggest names in the business in one night. So regardless of him being a two- or three-month champion, he was still the first, and he beat the two biggest names in the business to get there. 
Let's get to some questions on Facebook. I want to do these rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Now, if you'd like to ask a question, we encourage you, man, look for these questions on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Michael wants to know why was San Diego chosen to host a pay-per-view since they don't have a major arena? Well, they do have a major arena. It's a greater, it's a great arena, the sports arena in San Diego, and it's always been a good market coupled with Los Angeles. So it was logical to run. Uh, David Sharp wants to know, was there ever any plans to have Jericho and Vince align long-term? It always bothered me that Jericho didn't get more of a clean victory. No, there wasn't. Jericho didn't really need Vince, and it wasn't somebody that Vince would really recruit. It was just a way to kind of endorse Jericho with a little bit of Vince dust. Blake says, I always got the impression that Rock and Jericho enjoyed working with each other. Was Rock a supporter of Y2J going over? Can you offer any insight as to their relationship? They did enjoy working with one another because both guys had a great gift of gab and both guys could improvise. So they played well off of each other and they had good chemistry. Josh wants to know, there's rumor and innuendo that Steve Austin was pitched a win at Vengeance and then WrestleMania against Triple H. Was that ever pitched to Steve to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, a year beforehand. But it wasn't, it wasn't the whole, it wasn't the, unification title and all that we weren't there yet but the austin triple h match at wrestlemania overall was pitched as a one-year story arc at one time travis wants to know was the plan always for the winner to carry around two belts after unifying the titles (laughs) and if so was it when was it decided to create the undisputed belt well when vince talked about having an undisputed champion we all assumed that we were getting one you know, undisputed unified champion, but they didn't do that right away. And I never understood it. It just, to me, it was confusing. Let's talk about that. The undisputed belt is a bit of a departure for the company because they had for years going back to 1988 used what we belt marks call the winged eagle. And I guess all <laughs> eagles have wings, but it's the Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels belt. And then after that, after WrestleMania 14, 10 years later, we see the Big Eagle, the one that Jericho won here. The Undisputed Belt, though, is a completely different shape, and it's by a completely different guy than who did the original Winged Eagle. But it's still Joe Marshall who did the Big Eagle. What was the, the thought process between changing the design of the belt? Is this something that Vince has input on, and he says, I want something new, I want a different-looking belt? Or how does the creative change for the way a belt looks? Is that all at Vince's whim, or who else has input? Well, at this time, you know, a lot of us had input on it. It ultimately comes down to Vince's decision, but you get ideas from creative services. And then once you see drawings, you, everybody kind of has their input. One of the ideas was to get away. I, I get it. An eagle's a domestic, a, uh, not, uh, not, I was going to say domestic animal, but I mean a, a, it's a strong symbol, but I always thought that the world championship should have the world on it. Right. And that was, that was kind of one of the ideas that we were looking for on the undisputed championship. Ray wants to know off subject, but was Bruce Pritchard ever considered to be an on-screen stooge for Vince McMahon, the way Patterson and Briscoe were? I wasn't old enough. Eric wants to know, did Jericho need any coaching for his amazing promos or was it all Chris? Um, most of that was all Chris. I think Chris is a natural. If you listen to him, now, today, doing anything. He's a natural promo artist. 
Babar wants to know whose idea was the finish of the hardcore match with the last ride through a table off the stage. I loved it. It was one of my favorite hardcore spots. This is a combination of Van Dam and Undertaker getting together and seeing what they could do with the different toys that they had and doing something different. Paul wants to know, since Jericho beat both Rock and Austin with screw job finishes, did the office not have total faith in Jericho and this was just an effort to warm up the belt for Triple H? Or was it to show that he's an undeserving heel? He's a heel. It puts heat on him. Uh, Travis wants to know, what are your thoughts on William Regal as a wrestler? I think his stuff is really underrated by most people. I think he's an excellent old school heel. Uh, Brian wants to know, why didn't The Undertaker have to defend the hardcore title under 24-7 rules? Were we doing hard, Were we doing 24-7 rules at that time? I think we had I think we had abolished the 24/7 rule at that point. Uh, Brian wants to know, do you consider Austin and Rock duetting Margaritaville on the Raw before this pay-per-view one of the funniest moments in wrestling history? <sighs> Not nearly as funny as when they used to do it impromptu at the end of shows and the camera the cameras were rolling a lot of times, but when they used to do it at the end of house shows or at the end of TV just to entertain us, I thought it was a thousand times better than when it was quote written for TV, but it was highly entertaining. Uh, Bradley says, I'll always remember this show for the expression on Jericho's face after Austin's music hits right after he pinned the rock signaling the start of the finals. However, was the layout for the show always to have all three matches at the end of the show or is there talk of having Austin angle and then rock Jericho earlier in the evening and then coming back for finals at the end? No, the the layout was always to do the last three matches back to back to back, kind of to uh, even stack the odds more against Jericho. Right there at the end, you, even now you're thinking, "Oh my God, he just finished with a match. How in the hell is he going to be able to compete?" So having, you know, Rock and who was it? It was Rock, Vince, everybody going down and laying both guys out. They they started on an even playing field. Uh, Jay says Jericho talks about this night in his second book. He basically says that this night didn't legitimize him because of how he won the title. He felt like it made him look like a weak champion because of the interferences from McMahon and Booker T. Looking back at it now, do you agree with Jericho's assessment, and would you have booked it differently? No, I actually disagree with his assessment on it because I think that it made him as a heel champion and still gave him the bragging rights. Is a heel when you lie, but you're telling the you're, you tell the truth with a tinge of lie in it. He beat both Austin and Rock in one night. He's got something to brag about forever. So I thought it was good for him to win that way. Michael wants to know: Does Vince or any of the boys like the band Fozzy? I'm willing to bet that I doubt Vince has ever even heard the band Fozzy. I'm going to go see him play at the Scout Bar in Houston in March. What's your favorite Fozzy song? That one. Um, maybe the best question we've ever had, uh, hypothetically, this is from Brian Plunkett. Shout out to Brian. Hypothetically speaking, what would Johnny A say about the Mr. McMahon kiss my ass club? Move over JR. That's not how you do it. Let me show you. You got to slip the tongue in and it's got to turn your head a little sideways. Go a bunker, dude. Can I do it again? Show him Vince. There it is, boys and girls. Tune in next week. We've got the creation of Raw. There might be a few minutes left for you to get a question in over on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. 
Don't forget to pick up your tickets. Barclays Center, our biggest live show ever. You don't want to miss it. We have a surprise guest that blows away all other surprise guests. I don't make empty promises, and we don't want an empty seat. Pick it up. Barclays Center. And you can only find those tickets at boxofgimmicks.com. Don't forget, for just $35, you're going to get to see the Heat play the Nets, and then Bruce and I are going to make you laugh. Eight days later, we're coming to Philadelphia, and that is on January 27th, the night before the Royal Rumble. If you're going to NXT, you can still see us or skip NXT and see Jake Roberts all for the same price. Those tickets are at pronouncepal.com. He is at Bruce Pritchard on Twitter. Don't put a T in his name. Put one on your back at brucepritchard.com. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here for the creation of Raw on something to wrestle with. Happy New Year! Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.